<laughs> It'd be a shame if we get through this whole thing. No, you can hear freaking cicadas. <laughs> <laughs> quintessential episode <laughs> of script v manuscript the podcast which talks movies and books and talks about movies which have become books and books which have become movies and all sorts of other stories that are neither books nor movies that's right we don't really like to limit ourselves artificially so i'm <laughs> one of your one of your hosts terry I'm here with my fellow host joe and it is great to be back here man great yeah, to be back it has been too long we haven't done one in a little while but uh I mean, let's be honest here. We started this podcast specifically for this episode. Absolutely. So. <laughs> when you came to me with this idea, I mean, it was it was with this episode in mind, for sure. But everything else before this has just been warming up. Yeah, we're tuning up. Stretching. Uh, and uh, we're probably still not good enough to do it. You may notice tonight a bit of background noise. We have decided tonight to celebrate Tolkien style by being out in nature. That's right. And uh, enjoying a bit of pipe weed. That is to say tobacco, <laughs> which is Tolkien's term for it. If you're unfamiliar with Lord of the Rings, we are not smoking marijuana. That's just what they call it in the book. That's right. So, Which brings us into to the subject of today's podcast, which is Tolkien's classic, The Lord of the Rings, with Peter Jackson's film adaptation uh, in three installments, The Fellowship, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. But before we get to that, brother, have you been reading anything interesting? So I got my tires replaced today. Mm-hmm. And I, I grabbed a book called No Shred of Honor. I'm sorry, A Shred of Honor. And uh, it is about a, this is me going back to, to my old favorite genre, the historical fiction uh, from 18th century Navy. But this time, it is a Marine officer, uh, which is not something that's visited on a lot in those other books. It's uh, yeah, The Marines were usually attached to ships. Uh, I think that's still done today generally speaking but most people think of marines more as just kind of like kind of like an, another type of army guy like another type of soldier <clears throat> which is kind of what their job was they um they were essentially the force that was tasked with protecting the ship from borders and if the ship needed to do something on land that involved force like taking over a sea fort or a, a cannon position or something the marines would have been in charge of that task gotcha. so the uh, main character is a is a guy who has previously been accused of cowardice because he left a post um, unrelieved. Um, he just left, and he, he did it because he had to go and uh, uh, duel someone in a duel, which he killed uh, killed a man in a duel, and then kind of earned himself a, a nasty reputation from that. And so he's 
uh, very flawed character. He's trying to overcome this societal... Uh, he's also Irish, serving in the British Navy, which was an interesting dynamic as well, because Ireland, Ireland was and remains an occupied country, although sure. a lot of Irish people consider themselves to be a part of Great Britain. Some Irish people think of themselves as Irish and don't like Great Britain. Sure. At the time, uh, the Irish were always threatening to revolt, um, and uh, Napoleon, well, this is this book actually takes place just before Napoleon, but uh, the French were usually trying to stoke that revolution as a way to kind of get a second front opened up so Britain would be occupied with that. So um, some, some interesting dynamics, and he's trying to, he's actually an army officer who's been attached to the Navy, doesn't really want to be in the Navy, um, but they needed volunteers for naval service, and so he was basically sent away because of his bad reputation, his commanding officer wanted him gone. So him and a handful of, uh, like, jailbait rejects soldiers were sent to be uh, on a ship. And so he's he's dealing with all that stuff. Wow. So, that sounds great, man. Yeah. So that's what I've been reading. I read 100 pages of that today while I waited around for like a million hours for them to change my tires. <laughs> Which, did you take it to a local place or I some did, big yeah. chain? Well, I thought it was a local place. There's a local place that we've always done business with, and I've come to find out that they have been bought by a chain. Ah. So. Therein lies the problem. We might, we might, we might look elsewhere in the future. Sure. Well, I, uh, at the beginning of summer, began and read very quickly... Uh, C.R. Wiley's In the House of Tom Bombadil. Uh-huh. I cannot recommend this book enough. Uh, if you are a Tolkien fan, it is a must-read. If you are um, just a uh, fan of insightful uh, insightful analysis of classics, it's a must-read. Uh, if you are a fan of the Theology Podcast, C.R. Wiley's over there, uh, it's a must-read. It is absolutely fantastic. He does a great job of Breaking down one of Tolkien's most enigmatic characters in a way that is very accessible, but I think is uh, very Tolkien-esque. Um, I would say he's a fantastic Tolkien scholar, although I'm sure he would hate the title. And uh, absolutely cannot recommend it enough. And kind of in the same vein, today actually, uh, I just started C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image, uh, which is a series of... Uh, essays, essentially. Um, they're essay forms of lectures that he gave while he was teaching. Um, and it's all, it's C.S. Lewis being a medievalist, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, of course, Tolkien and Lewis were, were good friends and both medievalists. And uh, this is C.S. Lewis um, essentially teaching that, um, trying to convince a modern audience uh, why we should be medieval men, why we should mm-hmm. appreciate the medieval classics. And so, uh, I teach the medieval period at the school that I teach at, and uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to sitting at the feet of Lewis and having him tell me why I should do what I do. And so I'm, I have I've just just begun, barely scratched the surface there, but I'm really looking forward to diving deep into those pages. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it back and do another. I'm gonna do another. What have I been reading? Okay. So I finished uh, David Goodwin's. Um, yes. Oh yes. I think did you have you read that? I've, I'm on chapter two. Okay. Yeah, I've, I'm I'm in like six books right now. So this is called the Battle for the American Mind. Yes, and it is uh, it is got Pete Hegseth's name on it. So if you're a Fox News watcher, you will probably know him. I think he's on their morning program and does some other things. Uh, but uh, David Goodwin is the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools, and he, I think, if I was a betting man, I'd say he probably did the bulk of the. Um, like work for it. Not that Hegseth is not qualified and can't write or anything, yeah. but this is 
this is uh, Goodwin's specialty, and Hegseth brings a certain uh, access. Maybe so. Yeah. Broad, like broadband, yeah. like broad uh, access. He has a, he has the built. He has an audience yeah. already. Yeah. Um, and so, and he I think has written several other books. Um, and you know he's really forthright early on where he said, "I've written about some things related to this, and I usually would give lip service to education, but never enough. I never understood how important it was." And my previous suggestions for how to fix this problem were all wrong. Mm -hmm. And David Goodwin has kind of showed me the light. So if you are a person who is wondering if and why classical Christian education is the best approach for most people, then this is a book that you should pick up. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. It's got a history of kind of how education went sideways, which starts long before we think it does. And, um, you know, if anything, it... It may not necessarily leave you directly thinking, I should be a medievalist, but it is going to make you um, very suspicious of anything modern. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, it's a really good book. I think it's going to get into a lot of people's hands that uh, God willing, um, that might not otherwise have, have found the topic to be interesting to them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm two chapters in, and I, I again, it's another book. If you're interested in... Uh, education or the state of the American uh, American culture and kind of how we've gotten to where we've gotten and what practical steps we can take to co course correct I think it's a it's a great read for sure yeah. um, very accessible very very accessible uh, so are you watching anything got any got any B movies for me to watch um, I, I this is I rely on you for this did I talk about uh, the daughters of Satan yet <laughs> No, you have not. <laughs> I think the last thing we talked about was like a zombie ship or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, no, please tell me about the – you say the Daughters of Satan? Is that mm -hmm, what you said? Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. This is a 70s horror film from uh, – <laughs> uh, what was it? Thailand, I think. I think that's where it was mostly filmed, Thailand or Phil the Philippines. No, it's the Philippines. Um, and Tom Selleck is in it. Okay. This is a very early Tom Selleck movie. It might even be his first one. Um, nobody else is in it that you've ever heard of. <laughs> uh, it's a bunch of, I assume, Filipinos. Probably, maybe maybe even well-known, relatively well-known in the Philippines. and Because they have a fairly robust movie uh, sector as well. A lot of B-movies from that era are Filipino. Okay. Um, a lot of zombie movies are Filipino. Like No uh, kidding. Some of the sequels to the Romero zombie movies are like Philippine uh uh, cast and crew and all that. So, um, anyway, they bring in Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck plays an art uh, dealer or an art expert, and he stumbles across a painting in a secondhand shop of. Uh, first of all, let me say this movie's not very good. So <laughs> I, I might make it sound more intriguing than it is, but it's it's not very good. He stumbles across an odd painting in a like a like an art shop that um, like on a bizarre kind of situation. And it the it's a it's a picture of Spaniards because the Philippines were were conquered by Spain mm -hmm. for a while. Um, it's a picture of some Spaniard like conquistador looking fellow, um, like burning witches at the stake and a dog. There's like three witches and a dog that they're burning, and um, the one in the middle it looks exactly like his wife. Um, so he's like, oh, I'm gonna get this. So he takes it home, and of course it freaks his wife out. She's like, why would you bring something like this home? Um, and he's like, I don't know, it just seemed interesting. I thought I would. <laughs> so, uh, she, you know, long story short, she's the reincarnation or the ancestor, the descendant of the witch that was burned. 
Um, the city that they're in, which I guess is Manila, has a coven of witches in it, and the, it's run by the um, descendants of the witches which were burned. Got it. And uh, she's, one, she's one of them, but she's been possessed by the ghost of the witch that was burned at the stake. Sure. And so every so often... They will, they will come back, the ghosts will come back, and they will target the descendant of the man who burned them, which is Tom Selleck. So the wife's tr- trying to kill the husband, but she really loves him, so she only tries to kill him when the possession becomes kind of active, and she's trying to resist it. And um, he ends up surviving till the end of the movie, but, <laughs> but the witches are essentially tricked into thinking that he died. And then they, the possession ends at midnight on a certain day, and so the three women who have been possessed have no recollection of anything that's gone on. And Tom Selleck shows back up at the house, and the wife is like, "Oh, everything, and, you know." And uh, there was like a dog involved. Okay, it was their familiars. It was a Rottweiler um, named uh, what was his name? <clears throat> it was something like satanic sounding. Oh, it was Nicodemus. That's not really satanic. Sounding, okay, that sounds biblical. Sure. Um, and uh, so the dog hated the man, and then suddenly now the dog likes him, and then everybody's just, it seems like everything's okay, and then at the very end of the movie, the wife just stabs him. Oh, man. Roll credits. <laughs> roll credits. <laughs> wow. That is uh, quite the emotional roller coaster. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I got done with that and was just like, that stinks. <laughs> well. What about you? Oh, man. Uh, so I have not been watching a lot. I did um, rewatch uh, Legend of Korra, which is the sequel series to Avatar: The Last Airbender, children's television show, animated show. Um, I'm a big fan. Um, it's not a great, <clears throat> it's not like a perfect series by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a really good sequel. Okay. And it's the kind of thing I would want to send to Hollywood right now to be like, this is how you at least attempt to do a sequel. Uh-huh. You know, it moves all the characters in a direction it doesn't try to undo the past Mm -hmm. it creates new problems and those problems are direct result of the solutions of the previous series right so there's real growth i mean it 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 feels like a history it feels like a world that's actually real that's actually lived in um it's again in a similar to what you just did i might be making it seem better than it's a kid's show um it's it's not you know I don't know. It's not a classic not or anything. High art. Yeah, it's not high art, but it, it, it's good. And I've really just kind of enjoyed going back and I don't know, just kind of enjoying like oh, like like Top Gun Maverick is a really great sequel. Yeah. Um, and Legend of Korra is a good sequel for similar reasons. Mm-hmm. They know how to move the characters forward without undoing the past. It's creating new problems, new challenges. Uh, so uh, I've been watching that a little bit, and uh, that's pretty much it, man. I've been doing a lot of reading. Okay. A lot of reading this summer, so I've been I've been happy to catch up on some good books. Uh, but yeah, uh, want to move to should it have been a a book or should it be a movie? Yeah, I haven't thought of anything yet. Um, okay, let me think here. I you know I used to have a ton of these just like saved up in my mind. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm puffing on my pipe thinking about it right now. Yeah, while you're while you're doing that, let me tell let me clue our listening audience in on what we're smoking. We're we are partaking of a particular blend from Gatlin Burlier, which is a uh, Tennessee homegrown tobacco company um, that that I frequent uh, often. They have a shop in Gatlinburg in the Gatlinburg Mall, 
Uh, but you could also order their stuff online. We are sampling uh, their Not No Local blend, which is a fantastic aromatic blend. Uh, and it is absolutely fantastic. And I'm doing so out of my newly acquired ACCS Churchwarden pipe. Uh, for those of you who are not pipe smokers, this is a uh, sort of a Gandalf-style long-stem, curved long-stem pipe uh, that would be familiar. Uh, you'd be familiar with if you've seen Peter Jackson's films. Uh, it's, the style is called a Churchwarden. Uh, and I prefer Churchwardens to short-stem pipes because the smoke has a longer opportunity to cool off, which I think creates a more pleasant aromatic experience, which is not anything that our listeners signed up to learn. But there oh, you go if you yeah. want to get into pipe smoking. Not I'm no sure, local. I'm sure somebody has a podcast about that. <laughs> Not no local with a church warden is the way to go. So, all right, I got one. Let's do it. Um, somebody out there with a little bit of money needs to do HP Lovecraft justice. You know, okay, I'm really glad you said this. So HBO, somewhat recently has uh, come out with a H.P. Lovecraft-inspired series. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. Lovecraft Country? Something like that. It's a little woke. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Um, uh, but but there's just no good H.P. Lovecraft. I've, I've not really seen anything that, that I've really enjoyed. Um, I uh, own a board game lounge, as you know. Uh-huh. Our listeners uh-huh. know. I've got a couple of new board games uh, that are H.P. Lovecraft-inspired. Yeah. And I've really caught the bug Do you for have it. Cthulhu Wars? I don't have Cthulhu okay. Wars. Um, Cthulhu Wars is, is an investment. Yeah, Cthulhu Wars is is the real deal. Um, I have the Arkham Horror series games. Mm-hmm. So I have Arkham Horror, Mansions of Madness. Um, and I think we just picked up one that's called uh, Unfathomable, I think is what okay. it's called. And you're on a ship. You're on a boat. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you were just kidding about that pipe being ACCS. Oh, no, no. Yeah, this is an ACCS pipe. That is an officially licensed it is. association of classical They were selling these pipe. at the conference. Isn't that amazing? Why did you came home with only one, though? I can't, I did come home with only one, yes. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I let you down. Who do I call about that? I need I, to get one of those. I will, I will find out. Okay. I will find out. Um... Yeah, I've caught the bug for H.P. Lovecraft, though, and, and you're right. Um, I've, I didn't even try to give Lovecraft Country a, a chance because no. I just didn't have high hopes for it. It did not look very good. I, I think it missed the point of Lovecraft. Um, what would you say that is? Okay, so I have this weird relationship with Lovecraft because um, he is a, an atheistic... Um, I think he himself was probably an agnostic, but his worldview is atheistic. And the, and the worldview of his books assumes that there is no God, mm-hmm. at least in the Christian sense of the term, and uh, assumes that uh, the Earth is old and that there was uh, evolution uh, occurred. Um, now, I'm, I'm not under any illusion that he believed his stories to be true. Sure. But he is such a good writer that it's easy to think that some people could believe that. Like, it feels like he borrowed from the real world. Like, he found these stories and wrote them from the real world. And I really like that about his stuff. It's just yeah. really well um, anchored, I guess. There's a, just a hint of believability, which makes the whole thing creepy. Um, I don't... The point of his... Uh, so, we've talked a little bit about horror before. Yeah. 
And we, you know, there's multiple levels of fear. There's jump scares, which is like the cheapest, easiest form right. of fear. Bottom right? shelf. Um, and those those have a role. You know, there's a place for that in movies. You don't get it in books so much. But um, there's like fear of a, of a horrible circumstance that you can see and observe. It's not necessarily a jump scare, but it's a scary situation. Mm. Like think of a, a zombie outbreak, right? Like you're not having necessarily a, jumpy, a zombie jump out from behind a door. But there are zombies loose around, and that's scary. Sure. And then there's like there's deeper levels of fear. And we talked about how the like with Frankenstein, the scary thing about it is the idea that it, your creator would abandon you because you are not good enough. Yeah. And if you even if you didn't really notice that when you read Shakespeare or not Shakespeare Shelley, right? Uh, Frankenstein that is. Um, you would. You you might pick up on that and just realize like and, and um, identify with with Adam the monster rather than Frankenstein, um, and then and then the reverse is also true where her work is sophisticated enough that you can identify with Frank with Victor Frankenstein as well, and you can have the the um, uh, the fear of not being able to outrun your mistakes right and your sins constantly coming back to haunt you. Um, which uh, which the monster does like it keeps following him and making him like trying to convince him to make another one so he's not alone and killing his loved ones and causing all kinds of problems so with Lovecraft <clears throat> what we see is human beings are insignificant and are a speck in history relative to monsters which are very ancient and came here uh, from the sky and to use his words they came to the young world out of the sky and uh, they arrived here, they fought with each other, they ruled over the planet, there was some sort of civilization because they built cities, and um, they had their own architecture, which is, uh, he doesn't bother trying to describe, because it's it's too mind-boggling and insane, and, um, and, uh, and then at some point, for some reason, they vanished. They went to sleep under the waves, under the earth, they left to go elsewhere, um, some died, uh, just various things happened, and they're gone, and they've been gone for a long time. So typically in his stories, normal people encounter these old ones or something like them. Right. So you have this idea of a godlike being which comes from outside of our planet, but rather than come to save, it comes to destroy and to enslave. Mm. And um, his stuff is is marginally nihilistic. In that often the good guys fail to stop it, or, or if they do stop it, it's usually coincidental. Like, um, when Cthulhu rises from the waves, it's almost an accident that enables them not to be, uh, not to have him set free and, and roaming the earth again. Right. Um, there's only like one of the stories that I can remember where they actively try to stop a bad thing from happening, and they're successful in doing that. Sure. Every other time, they basically narrow avoid, narrowly avoid destruction. And uh, sometimes I don't at all, and I don't know what it is about those stories that I like. Um, they're not—they're not the kind of thing that makes your skin crawl when you're reading it, but they're just really ominous, and I like that kind of depth. And it just seems like so—you know—there's elements of Cthulhu and Lovecraft stuff in lots of things that you see. Yeah, cosmic horror is the genre that he's kind of credited with, but you can also see this in any kaiju films, like. Godzilla or Pacific Rim, um, giant monsters coming, and like, what can human beings do to defeat them? Sure. Um, 
that a Godzilla movies, at least the old ones, were metaphorical for atomic energy and nuclear explosions, and like there's there's going to be a price to pay for that because that was always sort of his thing. Was he 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 was a he originated from nuclear testing and stuff like that. And in the newest movies, they kind of did a different thing, where there were they're trying they were trying to do an expanded universe for Godzilla, right? Right. So, these old monsters have always been around, and they've been hiding or sleeping. So very Cthulhu, Lovecraft type. Yeah, yeah. sure, sure, sure. Um, so those are probably some of the – they get some of the, what he's trying to do. But I don't think that most people get the combination of of false religion, idol, idol worship, human sacrifice, like the dark human practices that are supposed to bring them back from where they came from. And I don't know. They just haven't quite gotten it. There well, is a movie we may eventually do on our podcast, The Color Out of Space. Yeah. Um, which is based on the Lovecraft story. And it's, as far as I can tell, one of the only major studio-released direct adaptations of one of the stories. Sure. And I've heard that it's pretty good. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Which is interesting, because it seems to me, if you were to give me a list of his Cthulhu Mythos stories, that would be one of the most difficult to adapt. Interesting. Because it's a color. Right. That's the monster. What do you do with that? What do you do with film? that? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, yeah, that, that that sounds that sounds right. I I think Lovecraft in in just listening to you talk about it is touching on a thing that um, is also like true in his reality, although he probably couldn't have articulated it this way. But that like the ancients understood that the depths of the ocean is where evil things belong. Right? Mm-hmm. There's this idea that like. Out of the depths of the ocean, evil things come, and that's also where they—that's that's sort of their their domain. And so, uh, like you know, there's all this language in the Book of Revelation mm-hmm. that talks about Leviathan, of yeah, the deep. Leviathan of the deep, and then Beasts like rising from the waves, and also like that—that's their like cast into the lake of fire, right? It's yeah. a lake of fire. I, I whenever I read that, I always think back to Beowulf, mm-hmm. right? That Grendel's mother's lair is. Under like a pond or a swamp, yeah, like under the water, like it's clearly like a water. It's like a subterranean cavern, Mm -hmm. and so the you know there's just this there's something that we um, have this sort of shared human experience uh, that I think is touching on the the true myth, which is that the ocean, not the ocean, but uh, the depth, the depths, the the watery depths Mm -hmm. are. That's like where evil belongs, mm-hmm. and that's where it comes from, and that's where well, it goes. Also, and there's there's a few of them that it's not necessarily the, the, the ocean floor, but it's also like the very edge. Like uh, like there's one where one of his longer ones, the Mountains of Madness, is Antarctica. Yeah, and so um, it's where humans have not yet taken. Yeah, like the far reaches, yeah. right? Like depths of space, the final frontiers. Yeah, yeah so to all, put it in Star Trek terms, I feel like all of that's touching on the same that yeah. sort of same pressure point, mm-hmm. right? That that. Um, that we know that there's something in us that knows that we should feel that. I I think that that capturing, like you said, the dark human elements, um, and marrying those dark human elements to this um, instinctual shared human fear of the depths. Mm-hmm. I think if you can bring those two things together, I think you will be starting to touch on that top shelf horror. Right? It's not the yeah. it's not the jump scare. It's the thing that, like, you can't really fully articulate, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you ask the little kid, right, like, they can't fully articulate, but they know, like, the depths of space, the bottom of the ocean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> even, like, 
when you're really little, like the blackness of the closet, right? Like there's sure. just a fear of the dark. When you go, yeah, when you go beyond the bear, like beyond the boundary, beyond the the line of demarcation, mm-hmm. whatever that is, you're out into something terrifying, right? Yeah. Um, I think that that's that's sort of that top shelf horror that I haven't really seen. I haven't really sure. seen from yeah. a Lovecraft. Uh, I've never seen. Uh, um, what was it? The color space. The color out of space. Color out of yeah. space. I've not seen it, but I've I've heard good things. Mm-hmm. I've heard good things. Yeah, so Nicholas Cage, I think, is in that. Is it? Which is, is he's a mixed bag, but he's pretty capable as an actor. Sure. He's kind of become like a caricature of himself, but like he could do pretty well. There was a time. Months. Yeah. There was a time. So I mean, he acts in like twelve movies a year or something like that. And I'm pretty sure he brings his A game to one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and then the rest of them, he just is like, eh. I'll just be myself. You pay me a hundred thousand dollars, I'll show up. You can shoot my, you can film me for two days, and then I'll leave. And I'll leave. That's shoot right. Me in front of a green screen or something. <laughs> well, listen. Let's let's move to. Uh, that was my gripe. That was my make it into a movie. I like it. If you're out there, and please you money. Like if you want to make a movie out of something, nobody like this is untapped. And you know what? I bet I bet the reason why that nobody's really had a chance to try it is because Lovecraft himself is a very controversial figure. He was a well. He's reputed to be a racist. He's mm. not here to defend himself, so I, I hesitate to call him that without him being able to say so. But there's sure. evidence that he probably was. If you read his stuff, I, I don't think he was a racist. I think he was an elitist because he hated everybody that wasn't a New Englander, and it didn't matter what your skin color was. Yeah, um, he thought everybody else was like degenerate. Well, being from the Northeast, I can yeah, I can probably understand. Yeah, so he's a big like Massachusetts man. Um, and he sets his stories there, and I just think the thing's begging to be like a premiere TV series, where, or just like make it, make pick a story, make a movie of it. I heard some at some point somebody said, uh, "What's the guy's name? The Latino Peter Jackson." Um, oh, oh, shoot! What is his name? Uh, um, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, del Toro. Yeah. That's right. Somebody told me he was trying to make an adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. Okay. And I don't know where that is, or if it's been scrapped, or if they're going to do it or not, but. You know, hopefully, I would. I would think he would be a good person to do it. Yeah, you're talking about a story that needs some pretty creative visual uh, design. That's probably your guy. Yeah, you that's know? that's fa- that's a fair cop. Well, listen, let's move into uh, storytelling 101. And in honor of today's podcast episode, I want to set up, uh, help set us up by talking about um, the hero's journey. And so the hero's journey uh, is probably a familiar term to a lot of you. It's the thing, uh, it is a thing that is still talked about in high school classrooms all across the country, but if it's been a while or maybe you were uh, sick that day, uh, (laughs) just a quick recap. The hero's journey is largely based off of the writings of a a modern um, academic named Joseph Campbell who was really instrumental uh, for George Lucas, uh, mm-hmm. who who is the uh, creator and director of Star Wars: A New Hope, and sort of the visionary behind the Star Wars uh, mythos, among other things. Uh, yeah, among other things. Uh, that's his most well known. That's his, yeah, and and Campbell specifically mm-hmm. was influential for him in creating this mythos. Um, and that's the thing. A lot of thing, just really quickly. A lot of thing that people get wrong about Star Wars. They call it a sci-fi, but it's really not. It's no. a it's a fantasy in space, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's a it's fantasy. Magic, the you know science fiction. The the hallmarks that distinguish science fiction, good science fiction, usually is uh, a, a certain amount of attention paid to the scientific 
fiction. Right. Right, like give you know they're going to take a few pages to explain how the engines work. Okay, Star Trek is science fiction. Yes, yes. There are good. episodes about why the dilithium crystals are going to explode in an antimatter chamber, and like you don't have a clue because these terms are all kind of made up. But right. Most of what you saw in Star Trek was based on, in in many cases, uh, theories about things that could potentially be real. Sure. You know, scientists somewhere were like, well, maybe we can do this, and then writers from Star Trek would pretend like that was. A proven fact, and that we discovered at some point in the future, and now it's integral to the life aboard a starship. Right. And they go into detail about how to fix it when it's broken, how to use it as a tool, and if you like that kind of stuff, Star Trek is really for you. And if you think that stuff's super boring, then you might still like Star Wars, because in Star Trek, when they have a 12-minute segment devoted to how warp drive works, in Star Wars... They pull a little lever, and they shoot through space super fast. Right. And then they're there, and, and then it's over. That's right. And then sometimes it's broken, and they have to hit it with a wrench until it's not, you know, or some, or the droid goes, walks up to it, and plugs it back in. Right. So they don't devote a lot of time to the science, and that's one of the things that's missing that means it's not a science fiction movie, even though it has spaceships and robots. Right. Sure. No, that's well said. And, um, it, you know, it is it really is a, a fantasy in space. Um J.R.R. Tolkien, um, most people would, I think, credit him as being sort of the grandfather of modern fantasy. Um, he was standing on the shoulders of lots of people that came before him. But the modern fantasy genre, as we typically think of it, when you go to your local bookstore mm-hmm. and you go find fantasy novels, mm-hmm. Tolkien is, is a, definitely a, a, a bedrock foundation for, for those stories. Um, but to, to get back to the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell... Uh, wrote a, a book that, uh, like I said, influenced George Lucas heavily, a lot of people, but his uh, book title is A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Now, don't pick this book up and read it, because <laughs> George Campbell was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs crazy, yeah. and uh, he was really heavily influenced by Freudian psychology, and so there's a lot of psychoanalytics in his writing that is just not helpful. It's not good. It's not helpful. Um, even like some of my more... Um, progressive uh, professors in college would have been like, yeah, he's too far gone. And so that's, yeah, yeah you know, he's too far gone. He's read a few, there's a, he has a, has a few more books as well. They're all pretty much about the same general idea. Like yes. Myths, Myth, old stories. Myths is his thing. It's really literary criticism, but it's, it's of myths rather than modern right. literature. Right. And so uh, Campbell in his book here with a thousand faces outlines uh, as a general outline, um, because essentially what he did was he, he scoured the globe um, and looked at the myths, the foundational myths of every uh, modern or every major culture and um, tried to compile uh, sort of an outline for uh, what do foundational myths of cultures have in common. And what he found was that there's a traceable pattern for most myths uh, and he uh, outlines that for us, and it has now been sort of coined as the hero's journey. Yeah. Um, the Odyssey is sort of the, well, the hero's journey is one of a set of archetypes. I think I don't know if he discovered or just kind of named them all. So there's different kinds of story uh, frameworks. Yes, should, should we call them yes. frameworks. Uh, frameworks probably a good term. Yeah, I, I, I could probably look this up. Um, and there may be a term that's more commonly used, but the hero's journey is one of those. It's one of them. And so if you're going to sit down and write a story, one of the things you could do 
is you could write a story that is a hero's journey. Right. Uh, these and so the hero's journey is for um, stories that particularly focus on an archetypal hero, right? Uh, an archetypical hero, and um, these are usually like foundational myths, right? So myths are um, stories that are designed to inform uh, people of a, of a particular culture about their origins, about their values, about their, um, their cultural norms. Uh, and so myths are pedagogical, they're didactic, and they are uh, meant to um, be passed down generation to generation in order to uh, teach, in order to in, in culturate, right? in order to inculcate people in culture. Um, that, that, that's kind of the, the purpose of a myth. And uh, particular myths that focus on a hero, um, a, a lot of them follow this pattern that Joseph Campbell uh, sort of put together that is the hero's journey. Yeah. And so uh, uh, I won't go through all of the, the hero's journey, um, but I'll, I'll just kind of hit the major points. Um, and, and again, the reason why I think talking about the hero's journey is, one, if you're sitting down to tell a story, um, and, part, and specifically the kind of story you want to tell focuses on a hero – who uh, overcomes obstacles and saves the day. This is a time-tested, proven framework mm -hmm. uh, that has uh, really spoken to mankind for generations upon generations. And so uh, I think it's a, it's a good starting point for you as a, as a young s storyteller just starting out. So uh, the hero's journey uh, focuses on a hero and begins at the status quo, um, which is the hero's home, or or uh, where we where we meet the hero, and the hero is uh, very comfortable. It's, it's usually very um, satisfied or content in the status quo, and then moves into an inciting incident where the hero is um, essentially given a choice to leave home or to not leave home, and the hero typically chooses. To not leave home, the, yes. the 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 instinct of the hero at the beginning of the story is to stay safe and to stay comfortable. Yeah. Um, Odysseus does this uh, in the Iliad when they come to call him to Troy. He pretends to be a crazy person um, in order to not go to war. Uh, Luke Skywalker does this, mm -hmm. right? I've got I've got chores, yeah. right? Um, but to do, uh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, but usually there is the advent of a wise counselor. Someone who uh, is there to help guide the hero and uh, give them uh, wisdom and skills that they need to accomplish their quest. And this person is usually the person that helps the hero to make the choice that we need him to make in order for there to be a story, which is to go on the quest. Uh, and so for Star Wars, this is old Ben Kenobi. For um, Odysseus, uh, this is uh, the gods typically play this role. Yeah. Um, for uh, Lord of the Rings, as we will see, Gandalf is kind of the that's kind of his role, and so that they the hero um, has a, a wise counselor who helps to get them on their journey. They then go through a series of trials yeah. where they have to overcome obstacles. They typically get uh, beaten and defeated, uh, yeah, but through setbacks, so. but through that process, they learn, they grow, mm -hmm. uh, they become stronger physically, mentally. Uh, they they grow in wisdom and stature until uh, they 
uh, excuse me, uh, and and through that process, there is almost always a descent into the underworld. Uh, now, this is this is kind of an interesting point because the descent into the underworld can take on a lot of different shapes and forms, right? So in the Odyssey, um, there is a, le- a legitimate descent into the underworld. That happens in a couple of. Uh I mean, you got a lot of that in Greek yeah, legends, yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of a lot of Greek uh, myths have have this kind of thing, uh, but it, but it, it can also take on some really interesting forms. And so, one example of this uh, is um, going back to Lucas, who was heavily influenced by the hero's journey. Um, a lot of people. Uh, kind of debate, well, what is the descent into the underworld? And I think uh, when Luke faces Vader for the first time in Bespin, you have a lot of iconography in that um, in those shots that is very um, demonic. So you have Vader in his Black Beetle carapace suit, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if you'll remember the uh, Carbonite Freezing Chamber, yes. which is where a person is encased in stone, mm-hmm. uh, is there's it's a lo- it's very dark. There's a lot of red yeah. um, overlays. Mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker is shrouded in mist. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the visual effects that are at play here are, s- are hearkening back to uh, Homer's description of the underworld. Um, you have Milton's description of pandemonium in yeah. paradise lost there's a lot of overlay there and so i think uh cloud city bespin is lucas's attempt to do this and the lord of the rings has this as well i'm, a, I'm, a, I'm gonna offer a counterpoint and yeah I'm not please saying do this dogmatically but what about dagobah uh an interesting so i'll, I'll let you talk and I'll, I'll i don't know if I, i'm not i'm just throwing this out there because when you said the descent into the underworld the first thought that i had was dagobah because it's like well, first of all, he has the the vision of Vader when he actually literally descends down into the yes. hole in the ground. Yes. Um, and Dagobah is uh, he's stuck there. It's like a one way trip unless he can unless yes. he can figure out how to get out using his training. For sure, he's not going to be able to escape. Um, nothing down there except for like plants and animals. Sure, that want him dead and. Uh, so that's that's what I thought of. I, I think that's a solid argument. Um, another interesting thing, and it's funny because this is going to seem like I'm arguing for Dagobah, but I'm actually arguing for Cloud City here. Um, the descent into the underworld often is um, – there's usually – need drives the hero into the underworld. This is sort of critical to the descent. And they often gain something that they were lacking in the underworld. Right. Usually it's knowledge. Right. Right. And so uh, Luke, when he's faced with Vader in that really awesome scene where they square off and it turns out to be, you know, Luke underneath the mask and it's a sort of a force vision. Yes. um, You could definitely make an argument that he's gaining knowledge here. But the very famous, you know, I am your father scene in Bespin is also. Uh, like Luke gaining specific knowledge that he yeah. needs in order to to win, um, and I, again, I would make I I think that there's a stronger argument for that because it is the knowledge that Vader is his father that actually leads him to defeat the dragon, which we'll get to is the last one of the last parts of the hero's journey right. because it's the knowledge that it's his father that allows him to redeem him. Yes. and so I think that that's the critical piece of knowledge that he needs in order to complete his quest that he doesn't have yeah. until he descends, and so, uh, but. 
the two the two main like arguments for like what is Luke's descent uh-huh. are Dagobah specifically when he fights Vader in that Force Cave, or Cloud City. I I, I land on the Cloud City thing. I'm not married to it. I I would. So here's a suggestion that I have. Well, it could it could be both, where um, Dagobah is a transitional area like the river sticks yes sure um and he he gets a premonition there in the form of the fight with vader the fake fight with vader and a clue but not certain knowledge sure um and then when he passes through that he goes to cloud city which seems to have both imagery of heaven End of hell. Sure, that's good. Because um, when he arrives there, like Cloud City is very lovely. It's a really interesting uh, set piece, and you know when when Han and Leia first arrive there, and Lando is kind of walking around with him. It looks like a really neat, cool future city. It's up literally up in the clouds. Everything's you know it, it's very heavenly in its imagery. And it is for peaceful, sure. Peaceful seems like safe. And uh, then there's the betrayal, of course, and then they have to descend into the bowels of the Cloud City and into a, uh, a punishment chamber, essentially. Although they, you know, in, in the context of the movie, it's it's meant for an industrial use. Um, but uh, so maybe it could be that, I mean, one could lead directly into the other. Oh, yeah, not necessarily for sure. Dagobah standing alone as this thing. Um or Cloud City standing alone as this thing, as it's kind of, you know. I mean, really, you could say we could, you know, kind of cheat here and just say the whole third act yeah, really of could, Empire, yeah. Empire is back is kind of uh, because it because of where it falls in the trilogy. Yeah, I mean, that whole third act of Empire could just be yeah. the descent, right? Yeah. Beginning with um, the ending of Luke's training and mm-hmm. going all the way to the removal of his hand and yeah. and 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 like that. Um, but, but whether, I I think that's actually probably the best place to land. Um, and, and, and the descent is, is crucial, um, because again, the hero typically there's a great need drives him. So it's a place he doesn't want to go. He shouldn't have to go, but need drives him there. And, uh, he typically gains something, usually knowledge. Um, but not always. Sometimes it's a item, a, uh, yeah, like a enchanted weapon. Right. Uh, Beowulf, Beowulf, this happens, right? So he goes, he goes down into Grendel's mother's lair, Mm -hmm. uh, and he ends up getting the weapon that he needs in order to defeat, um, the enemy. And so, uh, the descent happens, uh, and then after the descent into hell, in fact, usually coming out of the descent, um, the hero has to face the dragon, right? And so, like, the dragon is the um, ultimate, the sort of the, I don't know, the boss fight, right, is, yeah. the, is the main baddie. Um, and uh, this, has, this has been adapted for modern storytelling to be, like, third act closing scene, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we typically, um, in modern movies, in mod- well, I should say modern films, modern books, the fighting of the dragon is usually where the hero's journey ends for most modern audiences, but actually in the classical myth, the hero's journey doesn't terminate with the destruction of the dragon. Mm -hmm. The destruction of the dragon uh, gives the hero, um, is like the completion of their quest, but the return home is a massive piece of the hero's journey um, because the hero is changed. 
And so the heroes return home. You're establishing a new status quo. Exactly. There's a new status quo that has to be um, established. And that usually, there's friction there, right? Mm -hmm. Because the hero is not the same person he was when he left. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of stories have really played with this part of the hero's journey. Good ones have have done interesting things with this. Um, We'll get to that when we talk talk about Tolkien more here in just a minute. Um, But a lot of, one of the things I think is sad about um, modern storytelling is that the return home has been largely neglected in modern storytelling. That if you think about... I'll give you a good example of one that has this. Back to the Future. Okay. Yes. Talk to me. Back to the Future. I mean, let's just talk about the first one. Back to the Future, the status quo is that Marty McFly's father is basically a doormat for Biff, like the, the town bully who has been bullying him since he was a kid. And uh, he never never managed to stand up to him and, and face his fears. And so he grew into adulthood, never having gone on a hero's journey of his own. Sure. His son has to go on a hero's journey and uh, right some wrongs and fix a few odds and ends. And when he returns, uh, because of his influence on his dad, trying to help encourage him and, and uh, get him to um, better himself, when he returns back to the, to the future... That from which he left, the new status quo, having solved the quest and gotten home and been saved, is that his father is now kind of running the show, and uh, Biff is like a you know hired hand for him, which is more befitting his uh, station as like sort of a bad person. Right. So you've got that. Uh, that's that's one that I think of is where it's like we always get to see in the Back to the Future movies the results of the changes that are made on their journey. Uh, into the past and into the future and back from it. Yeah. So let me so let me counter that with one that I think um, it's it's kind of a bad example but a good example. It uh, think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay. Right. So bunch of hero movies. Right. All, every Marvel movie is a hero's journey. Right. Uh, and it's it's kind of a weird thing to talk about because it's a it takes place in a broader context. And so I'm going to be a little unfair, but in the first Iron Man movie. I, you know, Tony Stark goes on this journey um, where he has to become a hero and goes on his trial. He has a mentor. He uh, establishes. He fights the dragon, uh, and then when when he That's after the he first act, <laughs> yeah, and after he fights the dragon, mm-hmm. um, he uh, the you know sort of the, the way the movie ends is him standing at the podiums and he says I'm I am Iron Man and then roll credits yeah and so there's there's not really any time or attention given to his return home now that's that's a little unfair because there's a whole second movie right right and so you have a new status quo right well, and so they, so they when they so the Marvel movies are all intentionally unfinished right because right. they want you to come back and see what the what the effect will be sure uh, of what happened in this previous film sure. Um, so if you could imagine if Iron Man was just a standalone film and there were no films that came after it, um, that would be – but uh, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of movies that sort of do this where like the fight with the dragon is like the end, right? Like we yeah. fight the dragon and then like – There may be like a very brief coda or right. something where it's like, oh, he gets to kiss the princess. Yeah, that's right. And that's kind of what we're supposed to conclude is the end. Exactly. And so um, – uh, Star Wars, um, you know, there's there's not a ton of time given to the return home, but you at least have uh, the 
the Death Star is destroyed. Mm-hmm. There's a reunion at the end. Um, but even that, even with Star Wars, the original trilogy, um, which you know obviously we're big fans of here, um, I think more time, more time and attention could have been given to the Return Home. Sure. Uh, but the the Return Home in in a in a modern storytelling um, diet is is lacking. It is. Yeah. Uh, is lacking. Uh, but that that's the hero's journey, um, kind of in a nutshell. Um, some really, just some final comments as we move transition into our the meat of our podcast episode here um these uh steps and i've not gone through all of them and we've certainly not done them in great detail but one of the fun things about the hero's journey is the way that you can kind of mix and match them and flip them around Mm -hmm. um and they're if you're competent and you know what you're doing um you can you could do this in really interesting ways so i'll go back to iron man just really quickly and the first iron man you actually start so medius res is another um, storytelling device that I think we've talked about already. We did, yeah, we did that. Um, but to, to remind the audience, it's beginning in the middle of things. Yeah. The first Iron Man does this. Uh, and actually, beginning in the middle of things for the first Iron Man movie, you also are in the descent, right? He's he's in the underworld. That's where he first makes his. That's where he makes his first Iron Man suit. Yeah, yeah. But it's at the beginning of the story, right? This is typically something that would have been second beginning of end of second act, beginning of third, usually. Uh, but they they push it all the way to the front and then kind of work this sort of reverse engineer uh, backwards from there and it, it really works for that film um, so so these things that that we're laying out they are not necessarily uh, it's not necessary that you have to move them in a specific order although classically they do follow a, a particular pattern but competent storytellers have taken these elements and used them to great effect and have sh- sort of switched and mished and mashed them together in order to tell really really uh, fantastic stories and again George Lucas was heavily influenced by all of this in writing Star Wars which has become the American myth right has become the, the sort of our classic um, our, our modern myth uh, for our culture and well like any master who has mastered the way that you're supposed to do things you master the technique that has been proven to be uh, successful, that has been proven to be uh, functionally useful. And then, once you've mastered it, you get a, you get the opportunity to bend those rules. That's right. And you know, a lot of people do, and they and they sometimes it doesn't work, but uh, oftentimes you can really get a cool creative spin on some of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me give you another example. Uh, you've got the Pirates of the Caribbean series, right? Yeah. So who's the protagonist of the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie? Who's the protagonist? Mm-hmm. Will Turner. Correct. No. Who does everyone remember a from lot, the Pirates a lot of, of the Caribbean movie? Jack Sparrow. Why? Because of he's so enigmatic. I guess so, yeah. If you watch those movies, you'll see that um, Will Turner is the protagonist. It is his adventure. It's his story. Yeah. Um... Obviously, Jack Sparrow plays an important role as well, but over the course of the movies, they change and they become Jack Sparrow's movies, right? right. Like, it becomes his quest. I remember the second movie, um, I was like, oh, this one's actually about him trying to accomplish a goal. And the third one, the second and third one kind of go together. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, that's an interesting... You know, you have a, you have a character who has 
so larger than life that he kind of has overtaken the movies and you, you can't really visualize the films without him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he isn't, he is not the protagonist of the first one. He's actually, he's the, he is the, um, the cat, the, uh, uh, the wise mentor, right? Like he's the, I suppose so, yeah. he's like, he's the Gandalf, yeah. right? He's the, he's the Obi-Wan Kenobi because Will needs, Will's in the status quo. He needs someone to sort of teach him and guide him on his quest and Jack Sparrow's the one who teaches him how to sail. He teaches him how to he teaches him how to be a pirate, right? Um, and he so he is the Athena. He is the uh, Obi Wan Kenobi of the first of the first film. And I'm you know Terry, you might be commenting on something that I've never really been able to fully articulate, which is that I love the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and I'm not a huge fan of the other ones. Yeah. And it may be because of the because of the protagonist shift that I like Jack Sparrow as this sort of odd enigmatic take on the classical trope of the wizard the wise sage yeah right because no, no one who looks at jack sparrow says that's the wise sage and yet he's constantly he always wins he always wins right yeah. he always figures out a way he's, and they say it's lucky jack but how much of it is luck and how much of it is skill and right he never lets on and the more you get to know like the more of that mystery that's gone the less interesting he is mm. yeah i think you're hitting on something you're i think you're 100 percent right about that and maybe is that's why I don't like the the following films as much, just because I think Jack Sparrow works as a really interesting take on the sage, yeah. but not as a protagonist. Interesting. Those movies are pretty fun, though. They are great. Overall, oh yeah. They're, Overall, they're, 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 they're generally good. pretty good. Yeah, they're pretty good. All right then. Enough, <sighs> enough of this. You ready? I doubt it. <laughs> Should we warn the the listeners? All right, well, this is almost certainly going to have to be broken up into multiple parts. Yeah. And uh, we don't know if we're going to have to record more than once. It depends. So just settle in because we uh, we have opinions. We do. And this is going to be a spoiler discussion. So mm-hmm. if you've not read or seen um, the movies and or books, um, if you don't want us to spoil the end, then you need to just go finish them before you continue. Yeah. Because um, we're going to. We are going to try to keep this layman friendly. We don't want to get bogged down in the in the minutia of the appendices. Tolkien, uh, t- to preface this, Tolkien's world is unparalleled in its vast imaginative fulfillment. Tolkien dedicated decades of his life to thinking about this, to planning it, to putting it on paper, drawing pictures of it. I mean, he he did it all, and really the basis for his starting point was his personal interest, which was language, which I think is really an interesting thing. We might come back and talk about that more in detail at some point, but he was a philologist, which I don't think is a term you hear much now, but he was essentially a a language scholar, and he specialized in uh, Northern and Central European languages. He was a professor of Saxon, Anglo-Saxon, at Oxford. and uh, so he, he's obviously big on history, big on myth, and big on language. And all these things had an effect on his ability to tell stories. Master of the word, because he just knows language. Yes. So all this to say, if you love Middle Earth, or if you are intrigued by our discussion of it, there is as much Middle Earth as you care to have. That's right. You just have to go find it. And it's not hard to find because there's lots of his writings that exist, and there's lots of continued writings from his son who has done a faithful job trying to keep that uh, uh, that estate kind of running as uh, Tolkien Sr. would have wanted. Indeed. 
Phil, uh, you know, that's that's kind of our preface to this. <laughs> We're going to focus tonight on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We're going to, I'm certainly going to mention The Hobbit some. A little bit of The Silmarillion may come up, which is uh, a lesser known work. But it's probably after The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is better, best known, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we, we'll try not to get too bogged down in, in the minutia. But it's difficult to know where to start here. Because, I mean, we have lots to say about these books. So uh, Joe here is a teacher at a classical Christian school and is fortunate enough to have been assigned to teach the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Indeed. In addition to just having been a keen interest in Tolkien's writings. Um, and I, I don't really have any credentials as far as that goes, but I, I love Tolkien's writings and have read them multiple times and love the movies as well. So... Why don't we start with? Why don't we start with? Uh, we'll try to keep this brief, but just a, a plot synopsis. All right. Just well, to, okay. Just to Goodyear blimp plot synopsis. Yeah. Evil wizard creates magic ring which can enslave people. <clears throat> loses it in a battle a long time ago, and it's found by a like a a small person, uh, a hobbit as they're called, which is like a halfling or a a person who has regular adults dimensions except well not dimensions proportions but is about half the size of a person right and this this person this hobbit is tasked with carrying the ring through all kinds of danger into the heart of the dark sorcerer's kingdom where he has to throw it into an active volcano while being hunted meanwhile the dark wizard is amassing an army to attack and try and destroy everything that's good and that's that's kind of your thirty thousand foot view <laughs> of what's going on. I think our listeners just breathe a huge sigh of relief because our plot synopses are almost like an hour long every time. <laughs> like, well, I mean, brevity that is fantastic. We're clearly going to talk in more detail about all the pieces and parts, but that's the general gist of it. So that's good. No, that's really good. To, to give it a little more detail, the the dark wizard whose name is Sauron uh, was a servant of a worse guy who was defeated before this story was told. He is one of his most powerful uh, underlings, and so powerful that he kind of takes over as like the the arch bad guy of this world. But he's a deceiver primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, his boss was more of a brute um, who who just slaughtered and killed. But this guy is more clever than that, and so he tricked people by making magic rings. Mm-hmm. He made nine rings for human beings, nine rings for el- or sorry, three rings for elves, and seven rings for dwarves, which are the three major people groups that exist in this world. Did not make any for hobbits because nobody cared about hobbits until this happened, basically. That's right. And Sauron never noticed them before, as the book says, because they were not important, and he only cares about big important things, which is why he loses. Um, but, uh, the rings had a, uh, a trick though, that there was one ring, which he kept that could master the others. And so any magical abilities that those rings had, they had because Sauron gave it to them, but he kind of controlled it with his own ring. And so he could turn those rings against the people who used them, uh, with the exception of the elf rings, which were stolen by the guy who made them and given out before he could kind of uh ensorcel them with the magic that would corrupt them yeah so they are still dependent on sauron's ring but he can't corrupt the wearer yeah necessarily yeah and the dwarven rings have all essentially been lost or destroyed um 
And uh, the dwarves don't really care about them. And, uh, I don't know. There's, it seems like there could be more uh, more told about the um, the dwarven rings, but they don't go into a whole lot of detail about that. So there's there's nine given to men. Those nine men turn into uh, kind of ghostly demons. They're sort of like grim reapers. Grim reapers, yeah, yeah that's good. Um, and they serve the they serve whoever is the master of the one ring, which is Sauron. So. Uh, after he makes this ring, he reveals himself, and there's one last final battle where humans and elves team up to fight him. And if they lose, it's over. He's going to conquer everything. The last minute, the uh, the last king of the human kingdoms uh, is able to strike the ring off of his finger with a broken sword, or or in the book, he actually breaks the sword when he does this, when he hits him. And uh, when he severs the ring, Sauron's body is destroyed, but his spirit doesn't dis- is not destroyed because they don't destroy the ring at the time. And uh, the king uh, fails in his his uh, test to throw the ring into the, the volcano. He keeps it for himself because the ring has a will of its own and corrupts him pretty rapidly. And he loses it, and then it is picked up by a, a, a hobbit-like entity who carries it away. Um, from his civilization, because he's basically an outcast now, because he's bad, into the mountains. And for hundreds of years, he keeps it, and it makes him live for a very long time. And it's found later in a book called The Hobbit, by a hobbit named Bilbo, who brings it home after surviving a quest. And it is determined later by Gandalf that that ring is Sauron's ring, and that Sauron is on the move again, and they need to quickly try to destroy this ring before the agents of Sauron can find it. And so he dispatches Bilbo's nephew, Frodo, on a quest to destroy it, along with some of his friends and a, a handful of bodyguards, essentially, from the different races called the Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, they have adventures along the way. And one of the members of the Fellowship, in the second most important plot in the book, is the heir of the last human king, and uh, is coming back to retake the throne and face down Sauron as an equal. Yes. Um, and uh, so it's it's more than one hero's journey, mm. really. That's, that's well said. The Lord of the Rings um, is a really interesting book because, uh, first and first of all, it is one book. Yeah. Um, let's just do a quick caveat here. The Lord of the Rings is one uh, tome, that is broken up into six parts, yeah. uh, six smaller books. Um, and then uh, for ease of reading, those books have, have actually been paired up and broken into three subsections. Three volumes. That are, yeah, that are now titled, that, that are now the titles that you are probably familiar with, which is The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. Uh, also, Peter Jackson's films, so titled. And uh, so, but it is one story, uh, but it's an interesting story because in many ways it's a story that has three protagonists um, or one protagonist, protagonist or two protagonists, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Um, and so that in and of itself, uh, not con- not even bringing into the conversation, the depth that you've already talked about um, of Tolkien's mythos, mm-hmm. um, it, is, it is truly a world. Uh, that he creates uh, and populates, um, but just the complexity of the narratives of the story make it a difficult screen adaptation. Yes. Um, and so we are going to break down significant differences between yeah. uh, the books and the films and talk about um, talk about those differences and and weigh in on 
whether they were good, whether they were bad, um, and just generally what we think of them. And so uh, I think I would like to begin this conversation by highlighting one of the significant deviant, uh, one of the significant derivations from Tolkien's uh, original work that Peter Jackson and his films uh, that he took that rubs some people the wrong way, but I'm going to be an apologist for it for a second. Um, and so I want to talk about Aragorn. So to to kind of, I've got some interesting stuff about Aragorn when you're when you're done. I'm, I'm excited to I'm excited to talk about it. So to fill in the color here, uh, Aragorn is the uh, king returning. Um, as Terry said, he is coming to reclaim the throne and face down Sauron as an equal. Now, in the legends that Tolkien wrote, Aragorn is singularly uh, committed to his to his quest, uh, which is that he needs to reclaim the throne of Gondor, um, establish himself as the rightful heir, and bring peace, bring unity, uh, and usher in a uh, sort of a Pax Romana, a, a renaissance of classical learning and uh, a, a reestablishment of a the glory, age. a golden this age. This is a very Arthurian, yes. like returning from Avalon kind of like... Setting up, setting up Camelot, setting up yeah. the, the court, right? It is a return. It is a return to the resplendent but now uh, decayed glory of yesteryear. Right? So, just a side note on that: um, if you find the the history part of Middle Earth interesting, Aragorn is a descendant of a race of men called Numenorians. Mm-hmm. Well, they have several names, but Numenor was was an island, and the people on there um, disobeyed the gods essentially leading to the island's destruction a la Atlantis style. Yes. And they were dispatched to Middle-earth, which is where this story takes place. Numenorians lived a really long time. They lived like 250 years. That was like a standard issue lifespan for one of them. And they became kings, and they ruled, and they had several kingdoms uh, in Middle-earth. They had Gondor. They had um, Arnor. Yes. They had... uh, couple of places like that. Westerness is a reference to, to kind of the, the men of the old age. Who, but the the blood of Numenor was mingled with uh, that of uh, different races of men. And um, there weren't very many Numenorians left. And so an interesting fact in the book is that Aragorn is like 80 or something, I 84, think. 84, I'm yeah, almost positive. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, he would be ancient. But if he's a Numenorean, he's almost... I think he is purely Numenorean. Yes. I want to say that it was like, oh, he's one of the last ones who has no... Uh, he has no mingling with... Le- he's like... And you have to remember, Tolkien is not here talking about some kind of racial superiority. What he's trying to get across here with that is that the Numenorians were better. It Kind of in the same way that, like, Superman is better because he's a Kryptonian. Yeah, that's like, good. Like, they're, they're just a better people. They're meant to be exemplary. And, uh, they, of course, they had their fall. Uh, they, there's a lot of biblical allusions in Tolkien's old history stuff. And one of those is, uh, like, being cast out of Eden. Yeah. Which happens to the uh, elves as well uh, in a different, totally different thing. But... Um, the men kind of are cast out of Eden, and they have to kind of make the best of it. And the Numenorians were meant to usher in a kingdom. They were meant to take dominion of Middle Earth and rule it well and wisely. And they and they failed ultimately. 
in the moment when Isildur, who was Aragorn's great grandsire of so many generations, sure. failed to destroy the ring. Right. And now Aragorn is uh, on the scene, and it will be faced with the same challenge. Yeah. Um, that that's good. Thank you for filling in the sort of the the color there. Um, so Aragorn in the books is uh, kingly. He is shrouded. Uh, he he is um, his his majesty and his glory is shrouded at the beginning of the story, um, but we catch glimpses of it throughout their trials mm-hmm. and is fully unveiled by the end of the story. Sure. Um, yeah. But Aragorn in the books is never confused or conflicted mm-hmm. about his duty uh, or and what he is here to do. This mm-hmm. is his time. Um, from the beginning of, uh, from his introduction in the Inn of Bree, yeah. right uh, to to his coronation, yeah. uh, he is singularly um, committed to his task, right, and he helps out Frodo on his quest to destroy the Ring. And originally, he is helping Frodo out in so much as their paths for a time are lined up right they're moving in the same direction that mount doom when they set out they aren't really 100 percent sure what direction they're going to end up going um you kind of think they have an idea but gandalf was sort of in charge of deciding where they were going to go yes and when gandalf leaves the party they're they're not sure right so now it's down to the ring bearer to make his own mind up but aragorn's path is essentially set for him because he has a destiny he has to fulfill and he knows it yes and he knows it the whole time yeah and i don't i actually want to amend something i just said i I said aragorn's never conflicted there is a moment of conflict Mm -hmm. at the very end of the fellowship yeah um when because because gandalf is supposed to lead frodo that that was always the plan Mm -hmm. gandalf leaves the party um, and because he does, there is a moment for Aragorn where he has to decide, do I continue on the road that I have begun, which is to reclaim my throne, yeah. or do I follow the ring bearer? And he makes uh, a choice where he splits away from Frodo, and he does it in order to save some companions that have been captured. Yeah. Um, so there, there is... Uh, actually, when I teach Lord of the Rings, when I teach the Two Towers specifically, we focus a lot on the concept of choice mm-hmm. because Tolkien plays a lot with the ideas of free will and choice, um, and he does it a lot through Aragorn. Aragorn constantly is talking about um, the choices that he's made, how he is an ill chooser. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, even even yeah, any setback they they run into post Gandalf, he's like, I should have gone the other way. It seems like he, you know. Right. Uh, I, I'm not sure what to do next. Sure. There, there's several of those. It's not necessarily that he's unclear on his end game. Exactly. He's exactly. just not sure how. That's right. What path to take to get good. There. That yeah. so that's what I'm trying to drive at. That he's never confused about him needing to become king. Mm-hmm. There are some some confusions about the best way to get there. But his goal is always set before him, and he's always committed to it. Is that? Do you think I've captured Aragorn from I the book? I think so. Yeah. I okay. So. Contrast that with. Mm-hmm. Viggo Mortensen's portrayal of the character in Peter Jackson's films. Yes, he is um, what can what could probably be classically referred to as a Byronic hero. Okay. Uh, this is the reluctant hero, yeah. the one who doesn't want who, who who can who can clearly see what the world requires of him, but but is reluctant to engage. Yeah. Um. So uh, Captain Nemo is a really, really classic version of this from, from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Okay. He uh, has sort of turned his back on mankind mm-hmm. and um, doesn't want to uh, 
bestow upon them the gifts that he has to give. Yeah. Um, and uh, as you know, sort of at the end um, of that story, he's 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 kind of um, dealing. That's kind of like his main conflict. Um, that's we're not doing twenty thousand leagues under the sea, but that's just kind of where the where the term Byronic hero comes from. Captain okay. Nemo is kind of a classic yeah. version of that. Um, the Byronic hero has become archetypally. Um, or archetypically, uh, the the classic hero cast or the classic hero framework for modern Western storytelling, right? That we we have become very very um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, comfortable with the Byronic hero as a hero, and and I'll, I'll use a different text, but I, I promise I'll bring this back around to Aragorn. When when we read Beowulf, right? Beowulf is constantly making boasts about what he can do, how he can do it, and what he, he has is, done in the past. He's yeah. got a one-track mind. Mm-hmm. There's a monster out there, and we I'm don't need guy. we don't need to talk about what yeah. to do because what to do is plain. Mm-hmm. We need to go out there and kill this thing. Yeah. Aragorn's similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am the son of I am the heir of Isildur. I am Elfstone. I am Elisar. I'm Strider. I am Strider. Right. I am Strider. I know what my task is, yeah. and I know I know that I'm the guy to do it. Right? Yeah. He's never conflicted about that in the book. Mm-hmm. In the movies, he has self doubt. Yeah, he has um, trepidation mm-hmm. about whether or not he is worthy to take on the role. Yeah, right. And his his character arc in the films is one of dare I say self actualization, where he grows into the man that we need him to be. Well, he continues to make decisions tactically, and by that I mean in the short run, that reveal his character as kingly. And um, it reveals it to himself as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a big one is Helm's Deep. Mm-hmm. Right? When you get to the two towers, maybe, yes. uh, you know, they're fighting impossible odds. Right. Right. And uh, there's even a scene with where him and Legolas are conversing in Elvish to kind of conceal their negative thoughts from the uh, Rohirrim that are there. And um, he says, they can't win this. They're going to die. And Aragorn says, then I'll die with them or I'll die as one of them. Right. And, uh, you know, that – and then his performance in Helm's Deep kind of leads Theoden to say – Aragorn's really the superior leader. He's right. a better war captain. He's a better... You know, he's a better he's, king. Yeah, he's I mean, going to become a better king than Theoden right. has been. Um, and uh, so they... he do, And, you know, I, you got to think about when, when we're talking about these things, there's going to be a lot of sympathetic feelings coming from us about how do you write this stuff. And I think one of the... If I can go back up a, a few steps... Not just about Aragorn, but about generally the story and everything. The books, where the books are more subtle and more patient, the movies have to be much more direct. Yeah. So this is this is generally true when you're yes. when you're transitioning sure. medium. You just don't have time. Yeah. You know, you've got an hour and a half or two hours. <laughs> or seventeen or, if yeah, you're Peter if Jackson. The extended version, you have <laughs> um, maybe more, but still, you you can't just do everything that's in the book. So right. How do you uh, in the in the book? There is a subtext of Aragorn having some doubt, but it's very subtle, and it's usually like in connection with the influence of the Ring, and it's 
it's overcome by Aragorn consistently choosing to continue on his quest. Right. And it's not like it is in the movie where he, you know, he comes to the table and basically says, I can't be one of these people that goes on this quest because my grand whatever failed because of the ring's power. Before. You're thinking of the scene, the same blood flows in my veins, the yes, same weakness. Yes. Yeah. He has this conversation yes. with Arwen. Yes. And she reassures him that he is stronger than Isildur was, which mm-hmm. she has no way of knowing. But um, we can assume that she has insight into his character because they are in love. Um, you know, whatever. But um, <laughs> so that's that's what they chose to do with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I don't think, I don't really object to that. But okay. It is, it is a discrepancy. It is. And I like the book version better. Okay. So this is, this is what, so do you feel like we've, we've clearly articulated the, the differences here? Yeah. Okay. So. I do I, want to spend well, before we move on from him. I want yeah. To, I want oh, to talk for about sure. Viggo Mortensen's performance specifically. For sure. So, I, yeah, I, I, there's a lot I want to say here. So, this is a thing that uh, the Tolkien faithful often decry, right? That Peter Jackson doesn't understand who Aragorn is. The Aragorn of the movies is this sort of self-doubting. Um, uh, uh, he's just sympathetic. Not, he's not strong will. Yeah, he's not. He 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 lacks the he lacks the kingly demeanor. It does until the very end, right? Essentially, he, by the time he gets to the end of the Return of the King, he is where he starts in the Fellowship. In yeah, the books, right. You know exactly, exactly. Um, one of my favorite um, scenes to 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 kind of highlight this is in the in the in the books. Aragorn has it, it's not. By the by, the time he meets up with Aomer and Theoden and, and the Rohirrim, and yeah, yeah. he's he's really not hiding who he is anymore. He's no. he's very confident to say, "I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Yeah, I am the that, heir of Isildur." He was going by an assumed name, right? And he was just a ranger. He's just a ranger, right? Which is, uh, it turns out, the rangers are all Numenorean. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's who they are. <laughs> but nobody knew that, right? right? Like they were just they were just weirdos who kind of wandered the wilds and picked fights with orcs and stuff. Right, they ran into them, and. Um, so they were untrustworthy, and he went by the name Strider, which is, uh, you know, nobody thinks that's his real name, but you just assume it's a name he kind of earned from being a guy who ranged far. and mm-hmm. So he, he was going by that name. But by the time he meets with the Rohirrim, he just announces who he is. Right. Now, the Rohirrim may or may not know who Arathorn was or who his descendants are, but I think I know where you're going with this, so go ahead and finish your thought. Well, so in that, that scene in the movies, right, he says, I'm Aragorn, son of Arathorn. This is Gimli, son of Gwyn, and Legos from the Woodland Realm. And that's it. Man, yeah. in the book, he he declares himself boldly. Mm-hmm. And it's enough that makes Eomer, who is himself mm-hmm. a a uh, valiant man. I think Eomer was well done. Oh, yes. I think they kind of got his character pretty good. I think they nailed it. Because Eomer is Beowulf. Yeah. Right, so if you look at like who is archetypally like who is Aomer, he's Beowulf. Yeah, right. He is, and he was well cast. He's yeah. the you know the Anglo-Saxon, the mm-hmm. Nord. Right, he's the Viking. Right, like that's who he's supposed to be. Um, he's the son, sort of the the adopted heir of the wizened king. Yeah, right. Like that's who he's supposed to be. So they they got so is it Carl Carl Urban Urban Carl Urban? He's great. So uh, in the in the movies that scene. You know, it's just glossed over. Like it, it happens, and you just yeah. move on. In the books, they it just is have to have a reason to, for them to say, "Yeah, the hobbits or the gorks are over there." Right. In the books, though, um, this causes Aomer this this declaration of Aragorn, and 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 he ends that he ends that part to say, "Help us or hinder us." But if you hinder us, there will be fewer men to go back to your war. Yeah. I mean, it's like he's done talking, yeah. right? And and he's not. 
to be clear to the to the to the audience, he's not belligerent. Who, he's, not belligerent. Yeah. he's just he's asserting himself as yeah. king, right? Like this we is don't have time for this, right? Uh, the, you know. I'm an ally. Yeah. This is what we're we're in this fight together, and we are not. In, you know, when I read that text in the in the book, you know, he's he's talking to Aomer as equals, but also like, but we're also we're not equals, yeah. right? Like, I'm a guest here, but I'm a king. But I'm a king, yeah, right. And so, uh, and it causes Aomer to say. You know, you know what crazy times we're living. I'm paraphrasing, of course. He says it much better than this, but what crazy times we're living in legends when legends spring up out of the grass. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, th- this is a time where you, you really get to see, and it's really Tolkien's really great. Um, obviously, he's an incredible storyteller. But Aragorn has really struggled with choice throughout this entire beginning part of the Two Towers, mm-hmm. talking about his his how all his choices since Moria have led to ill, mm-hmm. and yet he is singularly committed to um, who he is and what he's about. Yeah, um, which I think is a really really um, fantastic nuanced dichotomy. Um, that Tolkien is capturing, like this is what good kings do, mm-hmm. right? That even if they're even in the midst of struggle, they know who they are. They exercise their authority with virtue, mm-hmm. and they they get the job done. Uh, uh, there's a note in that uh, where it talks about I can't remember whose perspective it's meant to be from, but there's comments made about how they kind of looked at him and recognized it must have been from Gimli and Legolas where they looked at him and kind of saw that he was more kingly than he had previously been yes like when he was having this discussion he kind of just he seemed taller he seemed broader yes he looked like he needed a crown on his head you know like um he he in that moment that he assumed his authority and and uh that he he appeared to physically change to them yeah so. so there are a couple of times that's one of them. There are a couple of times. My favorite example of what you're describing is in the Fellowship. So this is before all of this takes place. When they pass through the gates of the Argonoth, uh-huh. uh, and um, all of the members of the Fellowship. This is, uh, for the viewing audience, this is this would have happened if you've only seen the movies. At the end of the Fellowship, they pass through two giant towers. Um, one of a Sildor, one of a Lendil. Their hands are uh, are outstretched with palms facing yeah. outward. They're meant to. They're they're marking the borders of Gondor. Of of eight of the old of the old yeah. Gondor, yeah. right? Um, and it's and meant to be like you can't come in here without leave from the, the king, king, right? You know, and or so the king's designee. This, this they, again. This is this is a discrepancy between the books and the film. It's highlighting what we're talking about. Um, in that scene in the films. Um, Viggo Mortensen, playing Aragorn, taps Frodo on the shoulder and says, Long have I desired to see uh, the kings of old, my kin. And they all look up and they kind of behold. Yeah. And, and Aragorn, you could tell he's like oh, more excited than yeah. the others. Okay. In the book, when they're passing through the gates they're of the Argonoth, they are terrified. Yeah. Right? The hobbits, Boromir, who is a captain of Gondor, yeah. uh, Legolas Gimli, none of them, none of them can even look up. It is too glorious. It is too majestic. It is the sublimity of this thing that is awe-inspiring, but like will kill me. It's kind of the way that like it's kids like fearing God. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's what it's what kids feel when they look up into space for the first time, and yeah. they're like, "That's beautiful," but or I feel that, like it's going to swallow or if me. You see the ocean for yeah. the first time. Yeah, yeah right. And it's so big. It's gonna know? it's gonna eat me. Mm-hmm. Right. This thing that is beautiful is going to eat me. And air, it, the books are very Tolkien's very clear. He is the only one who can stand, and and when Frodo looks back, it's exactly what you're describing. He he appears kingly, 
right? Yeah. For you know, the shroud of Strider is falling away, yeah. right? And the the glory that's that's always been there mm-hmm. is sort of starting to bleed through, is starting to peek yes. through, and that continues throughout the books until the end. Okay, back to Peter Jackson. That is not how Aragorn is depicted in the movies. No. The glory is not hidden, but it is it is. Um, it is burgeoning, right? It's a it's the kind of thing that is like growing, and doesn't sort of fully blossom until the very end. Have you ever noticed um, when watching the movies that throughout the the films he adds additional gear yes. periodically yes. for reasons? So he gets you know he starts out with his traveler's stuff, right? He eventually gets Arwen's elf stone, right? Right? He gets Baromir's bracers. He acquires chainmail when he goes to Helm's uh, Deep. Helm's Deep. Yeah. Um, you know, he makes his way to. Uh, he gets the sword. Right. In the movie version, he gets the the magic sword before he goes into the dim hold. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then uh, penultimately, he's he he wears the livery of Gondorian king with the armor and the crown. Right. Uh, which they did. That the crown is a little understated in the movie. Um, I guess he had kind of a. Like a smaller crown and more more. He has like a helm, crown. yeah, because yeah. he doesn't get coronated until the very end. Yes, yes. Um, so, which is that's consistent with the books. That didn't yeah. happen until after everything's right. done. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that was meant to be a subtle hint of like, you know, he puts on Baromir's braces bracers as a way to visually show that Baromir's death is is, and the, and the way that Baromir dies, is like. You know, this is sort of a, you now are accept, like, Boromir is basically commissioning him, like, don't let me die for nothing. Right. You have to go and save my city. That's right. That's good, man. And he takes the bracers and puts them on, and when he puts them on, the actor, who's really great, is looking at them sentimentally. And it's not just because, well, Boromir died, but those bracers had the white tree on them. Right. You know? Right. And, uh, and so he wears them for the rest of the film, and or the rest of the trilogy, really. And I think that he... I think that Peter Jackson probably intended that to be a subtle. I know what I have to do. Yeah. If method, if he didn't know before that moment, he now knows that um, Armir is right about one thing at least, and that is that Gondor has to survive what's coming. If I could track it, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's almost like Stri- Strider first has to become a man who has faith in men, and this is typified by embracing his Gondorian. Um, heritage, right, yeah. and I th- and, th- and that's sort of exemplified or typified by the bracers. Mm-hmm. Then he has to em- embrace. So he has to embrace being a man first. Yeah. Then well, he has he to is, embrace. He is he's depicted as a guy who spends most of his time among with the elves. Right, right. And so, and and there's a scene that's in the de- in the extended editions that's deleted from the theatrical cut, where Boromir and him have an argument where he's mm-hmm. you know Boromir essentially challenges him with why do you you know yeah. why you have so little faith in your own people. This is sort of contra, you know, uh, talking about Boromir's commissioning, right? Aragorn says in the films, "I don't know what strength is left in my in my veins, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall." Yeah. Um, and Boromir says, "I would have gone with you, mm-hmm. my brother, my captain, my king." Oh man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what a scene. Oh, dude, it's so good. Those two guys, Sean Bean, yeah. Viggo Mortensen. Come on. Nobody can die like Sean Bean. Sean Bean has got it. <laughs> He's got it. Um. And so then, in the two towers, so he's so so by the end of the fellowship, he's embraced his manhood, yeah, right, and the strengths and weaknesses therein. 
and the two towers it seems like he's embracing his kingship right his he's a leader of okay. men yeah. he is a he is a captain but also a king yeah and then in the in the and he has hope you know when when they were stuck at Helm's Deep and Theoden's like well, we're just stuck here. We're gonna have to fight it out. And gone, and Aragorn is like, we gotta call for help. Right. Let let me back it up. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, not not that he's embraced his kingship yet, because that's the sword. I would say in the his two towers, his his yeah. he's he's embracing in the two towers like his his ability to lead. Yeah. As yeah. a captain. Yeah. Right. But then the sword in the Return of the King mm-hmm. is like. You're the only one who has the strength and the power to wield the sword. You are the king. Yeah. Right. And so, like, if you could, if you could typify, and I loved how you commented on the armor because I do think you're right. Peter Jackson meant these to be subtle hints. Yeah. The bracers are like his his embracing of uh, of his culture and his manhood. Yeah. The the chainmail is like he's a leader and he has to he has to be a leader of and men. It's, and it's not that would not be what a ranger would wear. Right. They would right. wear you know, jerkins. Yeah. Right. Leather light, leather light shoes. And he's putting on war gear. The war gear, yeah, yeah, the battle dress, as it were. And then uh, he's armed with the sword, and then eventually the livery of the White Tower. Yeah. And this is his his embracing of his role as king. Yeah. And so again, I know we've we've, we've just been beating this one around, but to, just to kind of recap here, the difference is in the books he has the sword he does. from the departure of yes. the fellowship. Yeah. They right? reforge it. Andriel, the flame of the West, yeah. is is sheathed. In his belt, at the departure from Rivendell, with with runes of good virtue, right? Yeah. And so, and uh, that's the difference. Mm-hmm. That's the difference, right? The difference is you have this, you have this self actualization mm-hmm. of Aragorn in the films, very much in keeping with the classical trope of the Byronic hero, yeah, uh, which is a which is a more modern her- heroic archetype, yeah, um, versus Tolkien's Aragorn. Which is a classical hero- heroic archetype, yeah. which is he that's, shows up to do his business. He's Beowulf. Yeah. He is Odysseus, yeah. Achilles. He is, um, right. He is uh, the the one who knows what he is capable of and has come to do a job. Yeah. Right. And so, now that we've kind of articulated those things, let me just go ahead and ask you. So, well, actually, let, let me set it up. So, this what we're talking about has been a, a major point of contention for the Tolkien faithful. Um, there are there are lots of places you can go online, message boards and blogs and whatnot, uh, where people have voiced their displeasure at this take on Aragorn, this this um, self actualizing growth versus inherent kingship, mm-hmm. right? Um, so let me ask you. You've I know you kind of already hinted at this, but I just want you to expand a little bit. Which do, is one bad, one good? Are they both good, one better? And if so, or all of the above, where do you land on this debate? Well, the book is the is the one that I prefer. Um, I like the the book version of Aragorn when he's, you know, you can't you can't be confused about what he is wanting to do because he he usually states his intentions clearly. For instance, later on, he finds these magical this magical stone, right? The Palantir, mm-hmm. the seeing stone. It's like a scrying device. So you can see it's it's sort of like a, a two-way radio where you can see what's going on, where the other seeing stones are, um, and there's seven of them total, but they're not accounted they're not all accounted for. They don't know where they all are. Right. I think that there's at least three that we know of in the movie that are accounted for, um, and so 
in the books, they find one with Saruman, who is one of the wizards um, that is a peer of Gandalf. And uh, after he's deposed, they they take it, and it's the right, it's the birthright. They, so when the Numenorians left, they took two things: they took a tree, and they took seven magic rocks. And the seven magic rocks are these plantier. Right. So they are the uh, inheritance of the king. Mm-hmm. They are the they're like the family jewels of the house of Elendil. Right. You know, which is uh, you know one of the earliest kings. So. They belong to Aragorn. He has the right to, to claim them. Um, and so he uh, says, I'm not ready to, to reveal myself yet to Sauron, who ostensibly has another one, because he's able to use it to communicate with Saruman, which sure. is a different guy. Don't be confused between Sauron and Saruman. Right. And uh, Both bad guys, but different people. Yes. Um, so he uh, eventually, is, he takes it, and uh, after some harm is inflicted on one of our hobbits through sort of an inadvertent and careless use of the thing, he grabs it and masters it and is able to kind of inflict his will on Sauron. It's, it's very, it's again, this is subtle. It's not like a, you know, this is not really recorded for us in great detail, but later we have Aragorn kind of break down like, yeah, I told him who I was and what I was doing. And of course, it helps because they, you know, Sauron, who's who disregards things of of no importance, assumes that Aragorn is going to take the ring, and try to put it on, and try to bring an army against him and beat him in battle, which is what Sauron would do if the positions were reversed. Right. That is, in fact, what he's trying to do. So um, it helps them because it it confuses Sauron later. But also, Aragorn takes this thing up, and he's like, no, it's time. I'm going to put him in his place and let him fear me. Right. And, uh, you know, because he'll remember that it was my grandfather who cut the finger that had the ring the first time. Right. And we beat him last time. We'll do do it again. So I really like his um, character more in the book. He's more of an aspirational character. I don't necessarily think that the Byronic hero is bad. But I don't like that they did it here because um, I feel like it is a uh, a compromise with a culture that is not as – I feel like our culture hates responsibility. Yes. And, um, you know, we have lots of movies where people don't want to do what they're supposed to do. And they either figure out a way to win by doing something that they're not supposed to do. Um, you know, the classic trope of this would be the Disney princess who doesn't want to obey the law and marry a prince, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jasmine from Aladdin. You right. have to marry a prince. That's the law. That's what your father's telling you to do. And and if I sit here and say you you as a daughter have to obey your father and marry who she who he says, people out there are cringing. Right. Even if you like are like, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't have a terrible problem with that. We have been catechized to believe that that is bad, mm. that arranged marriages are evil. Right. And, I, I, you know, you look at culture today, and you, it, it's got to at least be just as good, if <laughs> yeah. not better. You know, like... It, Choice is really suffering here in recent yeah, days. <laughs> it's not It's not got a great track record. So this is, that's, a, that's an example that I would show of, like, a person who's reluctant to do what they're supposed to do, but that they... Um, you know, they come good in the end, either through sheer force of will, doing kind of going around what they're supposed to do, or they're kind of through circumstances forced to go down this path. Yeah, um, it's very refreshing to read older stories where a dude shows up who is ready, and and you know, you you may think, well, that's going to be boring because what 
growth will there be? Good. I'm going to talk about this because this, um, this is the counter argument that I think needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, so if he's a complete man when we meet him, he is not going to be interesting to us because he's just going to march through life with victory after victory and have no setbacks and win and then mm-hmm. it's over and it's like okay great you know superman won i guess um and so what is aragorn's growth in the book if it's not uh, here again we think we're going back to the the key difference between the movie and the books which is a lack of subtlety and mm-hmm. i don't i don't fault them for that i want to be clear that yeah i understand why they made that choice and the the character arc they chose for him is one that's very clear to a viewer who has no idea that there even is a book sure and you can get behind it and you can enjoy it and you can understand it and you can see him grow and develop and fight through this thing to win the day and mm-hmm. so if there was no book and they just made these movies on their own, it would be a great character. Absolutely. So, I but I prefer the book one. Yeah. So, what is his growth in the book version? Well, so uh, the growth of Aragorn, I think, in the book or what version. What is his arc? I, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So the arc of Aragorn, I, I if I were to try to articulate it. And, and this is difficult for for us to comprehend because, like you said, I think we've been so catechized into the um, the more Shakespearean um, idea of internal conflict mm-hmm. uh, versus external conflict, right? So Aragorn's growth in Lord of the Rings, uh, the books, is much more dependent upon external conflict than it is internal conflict. Not to say that he doesn't struggle internally. Because, um, again, there's lots of uh, times where Aragorn has to make difficult choices and then live with the consequences of those choices. And there's, like you said, it's subtle, right? It's not just, he's not crying. He's not, there's not a scene where Aragorn, uh, it's sort of the um, the 11th hour scene, mm-hmm. right? Where Aragorn's just sitting in a dark room, yeah. weeping because of the um, difficulty of his choices. And then some angelic being steps in and says, no, you... You have acted virtuously. You need to keep keep moving forward, keep pressing yeah. forward, right? Um, that's kind of how we would expect it in a modern film. That's not going to happen in this book because it's yeah. a, more of a classical story. Um, it's subtle, but Aragorn's arc is about uh, coming into his own, yeah. right? So it is it is a king who has lived in exile and has uh, trained, and because that's that's this. To be fair, to be fair to to the character. There's a lot that Tolkien doesn't talk about in The Lord of the Rings that happens before the story yeah. where Aragorn is uh, learning and and uh, working towards becoming kingly, right? Yeah. He's not born a king, yeah. right? He, I mean, he is in, in, a, in a lineage perspective, but he's got he's to cultivate virtue. We don't get a lot of that in Lord of the Rings because it's already happened. Yeah. Um, so his arc is not cultivating virtue. It's not self-actualization. It is taking what he has cultivated and having it constantly tested yeah and what do you do when the virtue that you know mm-hmm. is being tested and circumstantially it seems like you're getting your teeth kicked in at every turn yeah right how, how do you press forward yeah and this how do you this react yeah this yeah. And, and so his arc is about responding to external conflict mm-hmm. continually choosing virtue and coming into his own so right it's revealing the it is, man that he is exactly yeah. a, a, uh, it is external conflict stripping away the shroud mm-hmm. revealing the glory that is already there and so it's a different kind of growth that is largely based on external um 
circumstance and opposing forces rather than internal growth. And and I think you you said this earlier, and I and I think that it should be said again. I am not suggesting that internal growth is a poor choice for character development. Lots of characters grow internally mm-hmm. um, to great effect, yeah. um, and and it, it can be done well. Shakespeare is really good at this. Yeah, Shakespeare is really good at internal. Conflict. I would say most of most characters have some version of internal growth, um, whether it's overcoming fear. Conquer, you know, defeating a bad temper, um, showing forgiveness, mm-hmm. uh, rede- redemption arcs, of course, sure, usually involve sure. that where, like, I have failed previously, but I, through my trials in this particular story, will have another opportunity and I will succeed the next time. Yeah. Through, um, you know, being forged in fire. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of do that with... It's almost like an ancestral redemption arc. Absolutely, with, with Aragorn in this, which I guess again is present in the books. It's an, it's it's more subtle. It's just more subtle. But he he's never whinging on about how he's going to fail, just like Isildur failed. Right. Um, there. It's just be, not in the cards. Yeah. Right. Like the the his time is now. He's coming into his own, yeah. and it's hell or high water. Right. Yeah. It's 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 either covering all the world of a second darkness yeah. or he's going to become king and establish peace and rule yeah. right i mean those are our only two options so uh, t- just a quick note um on tolkien here a lot of this is harkening back to his influences right because tolkien was heavily influenced by anglo-saxon culture and, yeah. and mythos which is uh very much rooted in norse mythology which is pessimistic Right, yeah. and and the root of Norse mythology, the the pedagogy, the the didactic lesson of Norse mythology is: what do you do when you know the end is inevitable, inevitable yeah. and negative? Yeah. Right, it is negative, it is inevitable, and you lose. Yeah, do you, what do you do then? Mm-hmm. And all of Norse mythology is sort of predicated on. You act like a man, and you yeah. face it like a man, and you die like you a die man. You die in battle, right? Yeah. And that, and that's just that's just how you do it. Like that, there's just no other choice. And so Aragorn, even though he's not Nordic in the story, like mm-hmm. that's the Rohirrim, that's Aemir, that's Theoden, yeah, yeah. He, it's still Tolkien is just r- kind of rooted in that as a as a story. He's committed to that as a storytelling framework. Yeah. And so the uh, Aragorn's arc is about dealing with the external conflict, facing it. And acting virtuously, the virtue that he knows and has already cultivated, um, in spite of impossible odds, right? We're going to lose. Yeah. It is it is the quintessential Captain America cinching up the shield, mm-hmm. facing down Thanos and his hordes, yeah. not knowing that his friends are right behind him, yeah. right? I'm what just going to die here. I'm just going to yeah. die here. This is this is just what duty demands. But I can't, you know, what are his choices? Right. There's that no, guy's there, not going to walk away. There is yeah. no other choice. Yeah. There's no other choice for Aragorn. But there's no other choice for Aragorn in the Fellowship. Yeah. Whereas, like in in the movie, sorry, it, for the books, right? Yeah. Like he's made that choice yeah. already, mm-hmm. but for the movies, he's got to grow into it. So, um, I think you've I think you've articulated that well as far as the different storytelling options. I am with you. So, so I am on the record, and I and I want to go on the record here as saying I don't hate. Aragorn of the movies, the way that some Tolkien purists do. Yeah. Right. So I, I've I've read several. Um, you know, people that I respect that that take serious issue because they think it's a complete mischaracterization of Aragorn as a as a character. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair critique. Yeah. I think we've articulated that well, um, but I don't hate it. Yeah. I just don't hate it. I think it it works for the films. I think so. And too. Yeah. but but I will I will say that 
with this caveat that I agree with you that we have been catechized into this idea of self-actualization that I'm not crazy about, mm-hmm. right? We have no category for the king who is worthy, who shows up and just does the thing, yeah. right? Um, and and, and I, he's worthy, like, there's emphasis placed on his ancestry, and that is a very foreign... Now, the Lord of the Rings was made primarily by New Zealanders, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, it's a very American notion to, to disrespect noble lineage... Because we think, you know, the American dream is that no matter who you are or where you came from, you can succeed. The self-made man. And the negative side of that coin is that who your parents were and who your ancestors are does not matter. And that is not true. Mm. Um, Those things are going to have an effect on you. And, you know, the idea that... there's extreme versions of this, right? Like there's like the divine right of kings, which got blown up into I am a living God, right? Like the emperors sure. used to say. Sure. That's too extreme. But like this guy's the son of a king, you know. He's supposed to be king. And Tolkien kind of gets by on this by explaining that the Numenorean people were special in mm-hmm. this way. And, and he's not just any regular Numenorean. He is... They're, of the line of the kings. Yeah, they're blessed. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that's the word, right? They're, yeah. They are blessed in a mm-hmm. way that is unique and special. Yeah. And so there's a worthiness that's intrinsic to who he is. Yes. And it's not necessarily one that he has earned, although he he takes the worth that is bestowed on him, and he kind of earns it ex post facto, where he uses it well. Like, he kind of shows his worth by taking the tools that he has and his nobility and his strength and his, uh, you know, even something as mundane as the magic sword, which is, we need to talk about Tolkien and, and magic at some point, but, sure. um, and using it for good and using it to accomplish the end for which he was destined. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And no one else can do it. Right. Um, I will say, props to Peter Jackson here, the scene where he draws Andrew Flame of the West for the first time mm-hmm. is a great scene. It is a good scene. I mean, scene, when yeah. he when he unsh- when he finally unsheathes that sword, yeah. Elrond delivers it to him in the dim hold. Um, it's great. Um, also, quick side note, just harkening back to our storytelling 101 section here in this podcast, the Paths of the Dead is Aragorn's descent yes, yeah. into, well, into almost literally yeah, yeah into um, the underworld. Um, I, I'm so I, I think you and I are in agreement here mm-hmm. that Tolkien's version of Aragorn is preferred. I think yeah. it's better. Yeah. Um, it definitely is better for this type of story, which, uh, by the way, we we didn't really talk about. But the genre of Lord of the Rings is myth, yeah, right? That sure. it is mm-hmm. it is a myth, mm-hmm. um, which has its own particular set of um, presuppositions and and commitments. Yeah, um, and this kind of transcends the fantasy genre. Yes, and I would I would say that fantasy, which mimics Tolkien, that comes later, which is not as sophisticated is more fantasy. Mm-hmm. Tolkien is in a league of his own. In a league of his own. Really, there's not a better way to put that. Um, there's no, nobody that even comes close. Absolutely. C.S. Lewis's Narnia doesn't even come close. Mm-hmm. And I like Narnia a lot. Yeah, we're, Narn- we're C.S. Lewis apologists here. If you're a big Narnia fan, I'm, I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. But man, if you haven't read Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and all of the other things that go along, I just kind of don't want to hear it from you. Because sure. It's just not the same. It isn't. Um, and they have different purposes, right? Sure, they're yeah. they're just they're just different things. Yeah. Um, and they're both good, but Tolkien Tolkien is writing a myth that has certain pre commitments and 
okay, so let's let's do this with Aragorn. Uh, last thing with Aragorn, maybe, and then we can, if you're ready, move on to another to another dis- uh, point of discrepancy. But is it fair to say that Aragorn is Christological? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Uh, yes, he is. Um, uh, of course, none of the there's going to be several Christological types in the yes. book, right? There's a few, and they and they kind of come and go, and um, pieces and parts are. Um, he is going to represent a um, an assumption of the throne by the returning Christ, right? The return of the King. That term itself sounds biblical by itself oh absolutely um and that when when the lord returns he will assume the throne he will put down evil he will destroy the devices of the enemy and um you know aragorn of course is not a perfect representation of this but the fact that a, a king is returning to establish an age of peace and prosperity for the people that are um you know, in his kingdom mm-hmm. is a Christological. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is something that is biblical. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Tolkien very famously was uh, a uh, despiser of allegory. He yeah, he, yeah. he thought it was a, a sort of a base form of storytelling. In his second forward to or his forward to the second edition of the Lord of the Rings, which is the most common. Uh, manuscript that you know if you go to your local bookstore that's probably the one they've got on the shelves yeah, is the second yeah. edition um, which usually has a ha- which has a forward that Tolkien wrote in it he very uh, famously talks about his distaste for allegory and um, his his reasoning is that allegory superimposes an author's um, interpret interpretive purpose onto the reader yeah he didn't like that he thought that um, readers should uh, that story should be applicable yes, but not allegorical. Yeah. That's a term he liked to use was yeah. applicability. Applicability. Where you can you can look to Lord of the Rings and you you're not going to necessarily see so a, a good counterexample to this would be the line of Witch in the Wardrobe to go back to Lewis. Mm-hmm. Very very crisp allegory. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite as crisp as something as like uh, the Pilgrim's Progress which is just straight straight up, allegory. Uh, like the characters are named what they are, <laughs> yeah, you right. know, like Christian is named Christian and uh, you know uh, the sloth of despond and giant sure. despair Vanity stuff fair. like that yeah so those things are, are all very just and of course that you know this is a prototype of this kind of thing john bunyan was writing right uh lewis comes along and and kicks it up a notch as he does as he's, and yeah. his and his allegory is much more sophisticated but you don't have to be deep into christian theology to see that this is a clear example of christ dying for a sinner sure you know and um, if you read too, if the allegory is applied too strictly, then you get some doctrinal problems, um, which actually Lewis had a few at cer- certain times in his life. But um, uh, so Tolkien did not like that. He, he wanted not. it to be applicable. So you can look at something like <clears throat> the return of Aragorn and think this is encouraging to us. Why? Because the human heart longs for a king to return and put things right. Yeah. And that could be. I mean, th- think about this. A fatherless household, right? The children want the king to return and put things right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there is no king. In, there's a steward. Right. You know, and to put it in, in uh, terms of uh, Lord of the Rings. And so we want that. We want there to be a leader who can come and set things to right that we can believe in and um, 
And of course, the ultimate version of this is Jesus himself. Uh, and that's just one example among, I don't know how, I mean, we could, we could write a long list, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, so Viggo Mortensen's performance. Mm. Two thumbs up. Oh, dude. <laughs> I, so you probably know this, the, the, the Tolkien faithful know this, I'm sure the, the, uh, people who are apologists of the films, but Viggo Mortensen was almost not cast. Yes, I heard this I, story. I, I didn't. I still don't know who they had. Do you oh, know? I got a picture of. Do it. you? Yeah. Who? I don't know who they had. I. I know. That's from a screen test. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> who is that? His name is Stuart Townsend. Stuart Townsend. Um, you. Uh, he. He did not. There's a good cautionary tale in the Stuart Townsend as Aragorn. Incident. So here's here's a picture of him from he was in a he was in some vampire movie. Okay. Um, okay. Queen of the Damned, I think, is what it was. Okay. If you remember that, that's based on the Anne Rice book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which she had a whole series of of uh, Southern Gothic vampire stories, and he's in one of them. Um, he was in some other things. He was cast in it because Peter Jackson liked him in some movie he had previously done. Um, so the studio brings him in to New Zealand, and when he gets there, he's very difficult to work with. He won't do stunts, he won't do fighting, he won't ride horses, he doesn't like being out in the weather. Um, and he'd been there for a couple of days, and they were they had started principal filming, and were, were working their way through things. And um, he was being such a turd that Ian McKellen pulled him aside and was like, dude, do you want to be here or not? And... Um, they eventually were like, we can't work with this dude. So Peter Jackson convinced the studio to let him bring on someone else. And they had three other people in mind. Um, they had Russell Crowe, uh, uh, Viggo Mortensen, and I cannot remember the, th- the third guy. Um, but Russell Crowe turned it down because he had just done Gladiator. And he did not want to be typecast as like a sword guy, like mm-hmm. a like a f- sort of a fantasy fighter guy. Yes, sword and um, sword and swashbuckling. And I think very soon after that, he signed on for Master and Commander. Actually, so he good for him. He got a different role in a pretty good movie and yeah. was well paid for it. So like his career didn't shipwreck because he missed this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Stuart Townsend's career did though. For like, sure, he really didn't do much after that. I think he did some TV and he did that Anne Rice thing, but like you know. Viggo Mortensen doesn't have to ever work again right. if he doesn't want to, right. you know, because of I'm sure he had some deals. So the scene in The Prancing Pony, when he is first there, the first scene is the first scene they filmed with Viggo Mortensen as the character. And that was like he arrived in New Zealand and like dropped his bags and went to wardrobe. And they filmed that scene like the same day or the next day or no something kidding. like that. And uh, Peter Jackson to this day has said like, he that wasn't his best scene because he still didn't really he he was kind of feeling out how he wanted the character to be but one of the reasons why mortensen took the role is because he was a fan already of tolkien's work which i think is so great oh absolutely like i don't know if all of the cast was but if they all weren't beforehand they bought in during the filming and absolutely work that they did so i know two two caveats to that um Sean Astin, who plays Samwise, yeah, he was he had he was not he, oh, okay. did, he like okay. knew nothing about it, and um, oh gosh, just recently passed away. Guy played Saruman, Christopher uh, Lee. Christopher Lee, he is like he was like a diehard fan. Yeah, like I knew that. reads yeah. him like was reading Lord of the Rings once a year. Yeah, right, like diehard Tolkien fan. 
And so, so I know some cats, so some of the cast members were like really familiar. Mm-hmm. Some of them were not, um, you know, Vigo, Vigo Mortensen as Aragorn is just <laughs> divine providence, you yeah. know, like thank the Lord that it was because he is so good. And the reason, you know, they've got this guy, if you look him up, you can find Stuart Townsend, S-T-U-A-R-T, Stuart Townsend. There's a there's an extant photo of him from a, ostensibly a screen test or a makeup test or something like that. And he looks like he's 25. Right. And he's just fresh-faced and uh, doesn't look very tough. And Viggo Mortensen, I don't know how old he was when they filmed it, but he's already got a little bit of gray hair. Yeah. He's in shape. Like, he's not, like, old. But um, he could pass for a dude who's maybe maybe just past his prime, like maybe 42. Um, I don't know exactly what they were going for, but when you've got a guy who, in the book... He comes to the table with a bunch of. He's an experienced man, right? right? Like he's done things. He's right. fought. You know, there's there's an indication in the book that he actually had uh, concealed his identity and fought with Gondor as like a captain, right? And so he had time for that because he was eighty something, right? Right. And uh, and then he had lived a long life and tracked all over the place and had just lots of experience. And so, but Viggo Mortensen brings that to the role. Yes. Um, even if they never say, well, he's eighty four, you get the feel that that. Strider is an experienced man when you meet him. Absolutely. Um, he knows how to deal with the ring wraiths immediately. He's um, leading them through the wastes. Uh, just like for all of the, the self-doubt that they kind of imposed on the character in the in the movie version, the one thing that you absolutely can't fault is their demonstration of his aptitude for like the life that he was living. Yeah, like for he's sure. very good at tracking and being a ranger so, yeah and uh, fighting 100 percent. so that's aragorn we've done one character <laughs> <laughs> uh, i so i, I picked that you want to you want to move us to the next thing all right uh okay gosh i'm trying to think of something that's kind of in uh let me say this. Okay, so the movies, um, which do you think is the best movie? If you had to pick oh, one of them, which is better than the other two. That's great. That's a great question. So my answer is actually like the wrong answer. But I'll have, pick, I'll well, have to, you're supposed to pick the right answer. So I'll, I'll have to explain it. You're going to pick The Return of the King? No, I'm not going to pick Return of the King. So I actually think The Fellowship is the best the movie. The Fellowship is the best movie. Okay, so you and I are in a minority. So oh. if you if you pulled 100 people who've watched Lord of the Rings uh-huh. and are watching it like once a year with their families, yeah. they will all tell you that The Two Towers is the best movie. No. They're wrong. Uh, but <laughs> It's very good. It's good. I mean, they're yeah. all good. Yeah. right? I mean, there's not a there's not a bad film. Uh, but I think The Fellowship is the, is the best movie. And I and I, I'll be honest with you, as someone who considers himself to be, you know, decently uh, apt at analyzing stories and and being able to give justifications for reasoning, I don't know if the reason why I love the Fellowship the most is because like it was just my first taste of Tolkien and it just captured my imagination at such a young age, or if it if it really genuinely is objectively like the most well comprised film. Um, I will say I watched a great video. Um, I can't claim credit for what I'm about to say, and I, I should have looked it up so I could give credit where credit is due. But if you go on YouTube and um, just search Leitmotif, Lord of the Rings, you'll find it. Um, it's a, a, another individual, much like ourselves, who just analyzes stories. And he talks about Howard Shore's music mm. and uh, the genius of the composition 
of the music and the way that Howard Shore um, uses uh, the leitmotif, which is a German term, which is basically musical storytelling. I won't get into all that. But uh, the way that the music is a storytelling device and not just there to create specific feelings. So typically musical scores are used to um, under under uh, gird yeah. whatever um, mood and tone mm-hmm. the uh, film director is trying to create in particular scenes. And that is good. That is a good thing um, that, that when movies do that well – it, it works, yeah. right? It's noticeable when it's done poorly often. Yeah, and it's, again, yeah, for sure. But Howard Shore takes it one step further. The music is actually telling the story. So if you listen to the soundtrack of Lord of the Rings, having never seen the movies, there are, there's narrative pieces woven throughout the music that directly correspond to plot points. Um, the, I'll just give a quick um a qu- just a quick version of this or, or an example of this. The Fellowship score is an orchestral score that is only ever full when the Fellowship is together. So there's mm-hmm. that, that really famous scene where they come kind yeah, of climbing through the rock, through the rock yeah. mm-hmm. and it is a full musical score. Yeah. All of the Fellowship themes are woven together. From that point of the film moving forward, as the Fellowship fragments, that Fellowship theme is never played fully again. It is only ever in fragmented pieces, mm-hmm. and it continually is stripped away as members of the party depart. Yeah. So Gandalf falls in the Mines of Moria. Uh-huh. It It's lessened. Um, Boromir dies. It's yeah. lessened. The Fellowship fragments. It's lessened. Um, so that's just one example. Um, and, and the movie The Fellowship does this really well. So that's just one compositional piece yeah. that I that I point to where I'm like that's an objective goodness that mm-hmm. supersedes my own personal preference for maybe just because it was my first film and my first taste of Lord of the Rings I I uh, that's not true I'm sorry I'd actually read The Hobbit already by that point but I hadn't read any of the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. I watched the first movie and then I read the books yeah that was uh, the same for me yeah so um, there's that uh, but uh, the fellowship is just Compositionally, it's just so well done. It yeah. paces well. The characters um, all have all grow and terminate with as far as a solo film, but still being part of a larger yeah. narrative. Yeah. Um, they all um, resolve in really, really um, satisfying places. I'm thinking of that scene with Frodo um, at the on the on the beach. You know, his whole struggle is in in the film mm-hmm. is in accepting his burden yeah. and he accepts the burden yeah. right at the end of the film Aragorn accepts his uh, role as a man mm-hmm. um, Boromir Boromir overcome, he's a redemption he's a redemption yeah. Arc. yeah it's just it's so satisfying in a way that doesn't the the story's clearly not over yeah. right there's so much more story to tell but as a standalone film it has a clear beginning middle and end and it's so satisfying in a way that the other films do but not as well. Um, yeah. So I I think I can say objectively that the fellowship is the best move. I would say movie. the fellowship as well, and I, I would append to all that stuff that you just said that the 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 fellowship deviates least from the books, and the more the farther along you go, the more they they are different. Yeah, which makes sense. You know, you have to start on a certain direction. And sure. If you can't uh, if you can't change direction and bring it back towards the book, then you're going to eventually end up a little further away because you've taken more steps that way. You know? Right. So, um, I would say that the the fellowship is the most similar, and that to me gives it some extra uh, extra points. Um, so that leads us to, I mean, naturally, it leads us in the conversation to the one thing the fellowship doesn't have. 
Are we ready to talk yeah, about that, or should we save that? We should. Um, should, we, should we move that to part two? Now let's go ahead with that. Okay. Well, yeah. this is your baby, so I'll let, I'll let you introduce it. Is it? You you had mentioned that this is a thing you wanted to talk about. You're talking about Bombadil? Yeah. I thought you wanted to talk about Tom Bombadil. Well, I read In the House of Tom Bombadil, so I yeah. do want to talk about it. Well, okay. So Tom Bombadil is missing from the Fellowship of the Ring. Entirely. And if you look at behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, the, the lady who was the, the primary screenwriter who did the adaptation work... Um, pretty much said like we didn't think we could do it well and we didn't say they didn't go see Tom Bombadil so you can kind of choose to believe that and kind of fill in the gaps yourself I understand why they didn't um, it would be very hard to do that in a way that's like efficient in time terms and still get to where they wanted to end although I would also point out that the movie ends like a couple of like a chapter into Two Towers Right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they kind of blur the lines they do. between the books and the movies. But they wanted a big action set piece to f- finish to the fellowship. Culminate the so film, they did yeah. Amon or uh, Amon Hen Amon Hen? Amon Hen, yeah. yeah. Amon Sewell is the weather top thing. So um so the fight with the orcs where Baromir dies is the 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 capstone of the fellowship movie. Uh rather than where does it do they end in is it lot when they leave Lothlorien is that when the film no they get to Amon Hen okay um what you don't have so you you have the fracturing of the fellowship but f- so from the fracturing of the fellowship Tolkien um diverges his POV and then yes. from from that point moving forward you really have two POVs you yes. have Frodo and Sam yeah, and then book you have two or book three and book four right and so for, starting in the two towers you have like Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, yeah. and that does you do that for like half, all of book three, half the book, yeah. yeah, and then and then you backtrack yeah. and you go to Frodo. Yeah. So what the movies do because you can't really do that in a movie, yeah, they they, they alternate, they all because they alternate, they have to go further, yeah, in order to in order to terminate in places. So yeah. the Fellowship ends with Frodo and Sam leaving, but you don't get Boromir's funeral, mm-hmm. you don't get Aragorn's choice. You don't get any of that stuff until you start reading book three, and so yeah. you start reading the two towers. Um, so it it goes. So the movie, the Fellowship, goes into the two towers. Um, it, it goes further than it should. Yeah, which is you know that's that's another pretty minor critique. Yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, they, the point being that time management is an issue, and Tom Bombadil is a uh, character who is very, like we said before, he's very enigmatic. This is some this is somebody that a lot of people like to talk about. There's people out there who think he's kind of overrated as a character. They're and, wrong. Um, they, don't, they don't really value him and uh, think that it's just kind of an interesting bit of color for Middle Earth. But if you've not read the books, you won't know who he is unless you've just kind of heard people complain about him not being <laughs> there. But Tom Bombadil, we're really not sure what he is. When they ask him what he is, his response is basically, well, I'm the master. Yeah. Um, and so we are left wondering, like, what is the nature of this person? Um, he is married to the river's daughter. They are clearly magical. Um, but we're not sure who he is or what he can do. In a way that's different than elves' magic. Yes. Right? Um, he ha- He seems to have control over nature, but not in the way elves do. Like, he can literally walk up to a tree and whistle at it and make it behave when it's not behaving. Um, he uh, it seems to never be upset about anything. <laughs> I don't think... It seems like nothing can touch him. Although we learn later that... 
he would eventually fall to the evil of Sauron too if the ring was captured by the enemy. So, because yeah. one of the theories is like, well, let's just give the ring to Tom Bombadil because he nobody can kill him or you know he'll just keep it secret. And they're like, nah, he'd just throw it in a junk drawer and forget right. what it was because he doesn't care. Um, and so there's a lot of dis- dispute about who he is. Um, I've heard I heard someone say that he's one of the Valar. Um, there's disguised. a really interesting theory, yeah. Um, and that uh, a Yule. Yeah, um, or Tolkis. Um, I've heard some people say that one. Um, so those are those are from the Silmarillion. Those are that's the Valar are essentially the pantheon of Middle Earth. They're the like the gods. There's one supreme god, and then there's a set of uh, lesser. created lesser deities, which uh, created order through song, which is one of the neat things about Tolkien's work is the role of music. Yeah. Um, and uh, they kind of, rather than like the Christian story of creation where creation was spoken into existence, they sing creation into existence. Sure. And... Um, and so, uh, you know, could, could be one of one of those entities. Could be this person. He has come to Middle Earth to kind of dwell among people, but he's different from them. Uh, some people have said that he's a um, kind of a uh, unfallen Adam type, yes, a prelapsarian Adam. Yeah, like a um, he existed before the Numenorians came and uh, was there when they arrived, and he he's sort of a like he's who Middle Earth was really made for, but the Numenorians kind of came in, and he just exists anyway, in spite of them. And since he's unfallen, he never dies, and he just has a rapport with nature that you know nothing can bother him, and he's not afraid of dark magic. He he later goes on to confront um, undead spirits in a way that just shows that he just uh, he just he's not touchable. Like, right. He just beats them and takes all the treasure out of their barrow and throws it out in the sunlight so that the curse will dissipate and uh, gives the hobbits their swords, the first swords that they have. So, so he's not in the, he's not in the movie mm-hmm. and you can see kind of why, what do you do with that? Yeah. Um, because at some point, if you're going to put him in your movie, you're either going to have to leave normie audiences going like, what the heck was that? Right. Or you're going to have to answer the question of what the heck that was. Right. And you're going to hack off half the fans, at least. Sure. Uh, because you're going to get it wrong as far as they're concerned. So what do you think about that? Do you think they should have had him? Yeah, this is a this is another area where I, I am sympathetic to the filmmakers, and I think that um, people who launch criticisms at the film are being unjustly critical. Because for all the reasons that you've just said, Tom Bombadil is a difficult character to work in. And, and I've heard people say, well, so is Elrond, and so is Fanghorn, and so is Sauron, right? Like, it's all weird, but they make it all work. But, but it, it, I think it's unfair because Tom Bombadil doesn't have a direct stake in the quest, yeah. right? He is, he is I, this is probably wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling for words here. He's anecdotal. Right, okay. like he's a side story. Yeah. Um. And some some critics of Tolkien, the book of of the of the Lord of the Rings, the books, is that Tolkien was lost in the first. You know, you have the first chapter. Mm-hmm. You have the status quo. You have the inciting incident. You have the the wise sage. Right, going back to the hero's journey stuff, and then the hobbits just get lost they for do, like for a while for a while yeah. in the right? old forest in the yeah. old forest. And and you know, a lot of people have criticized saying like, well, Tolkien just didn't. He was just wandering around until he figured out, like, 
oh, this is where they need to go, and then he get, and then we get on with the actual quest. I think that that is unjust as well. Yeah. Um, because Tom Bombadil, I think, serves a lot of purposes, but it's difficult because Tolkien himself was was curiously ambiguous about yeah. who Tom Bombadil is. Right. He was asked many times and has been cited in a, in letters um, to course to different correspondents sort of not answering the question who is tom bombadil he's a character that um you know sort of was birthed in nursery rhymes that he told to his children perhaps but but has but burgeoned into something that the story he was confident the story absolutely needed and yet has absolutely no true definite explanation in a way that everything else does Mm -hmm. and so for a filmmaker how do you give your audience mm-hmm. a character who is definitely required but has no plausible explanation yeah. but 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 must be there um, is that is a difficult thing to do and I'm not saying it couldn't have been done but I, I will I will here's where I land Tom Bombadil I think is an incredibly important character I think he's an incredibly interesting character and I think he may even be the greatest singular character that Tolkien ever created. I, I have become totally um, – In the House of Tom Bombadil is a book I read. I mentioned it earlier. Um, I can't recommend it enough. It, it has really helped me to sort of articulate what I always have felt about Tom Bombadil but can never really say. C.R. Wiley's really good at that. Um, Tom Bombadil's a great character, and I'm a, I take the position that if you're going to do him wrong, it's better to not do him at all. Yeah, and, and so that's kind of where I land, right? Mm-hmm. If they're not sure who he is, what he's there for, and how he serves the purpose of the story, I am of the opinion that the films are better served by cutting him out. And so I defend the filmmakers, but I defend the filmmakers in such a way that um, I want to be clear. I don't think Tom Bombadil is a mistake. I don't yeah. think that this is Tolkien wandering around as a creative, and honestly, he should have been cut off. He should have been in the editing room cut out of the story. Mm-hmm. I think he serves a great purpose. And I, I don't want to plagiarize C.R. Wiley, um, but I, I would just, I, you know, there are some points in there that he makes that I completely agree with. Um, and one of the things that he says uh, is that Tom Bombadil uh, is the point. He is the happy ending. Okay. He is the, the what does restoration look like, mm-hmm. right? What does peace, what is the Pax Romana Mm-hmm. look like well it looks like tom bombadil it looks like a man who has dominance over his land but doesn't dominate his land yeah. right he is not sar he is he is supposed to be Saruman, he's not yeah. he's not Saruman. he's yeah. a juxtaposition that's yeah. cr wiley's thesis yeah is that he is a juxtaposition to saruman yeah. right saruman dominates through enslavement mm-hmm. right whereas and stripping of resources yes yeah. utility consumption right? it is all about utility yeah. it's all about what is the thing good for insofar as how does it uh further my, well, my own makes ends. a lot of sense because you've got him when they you know the old forest is the first place they go when they leave the shire which mm-hmm. is a that's an important thing the hobbits leaving the shire is a major event mm-hmm. in the books um, going through the old forest is an interesting adventure bit. They get lost there. They get in trouble. Tom Bombadil comes and helps them, demonstrates to them what it's like to have dominion without uh, dominance, I guess. Okay, full circle ending. And when they return to the Shire, they have to deal with Saruman uh, 
denuding the the shire of its trees and resources and tearing down hobbit architecture and replacing it with brutalism and stuff like that yeah and in a in a way it's like tom bombadil taught them what they should be well you know this is what this is the way things should be saruman taught them this is the way things shouldn't be right and so they they kind of have a I guess a reference point for like, no, this is wrong. Um, we're going to restore everything, and uh, so it comes back up at the end. Tom Bombadil does not make another appearance in the book. Um, yeah, the only the only thing we get is at the end. Gandalf it's, says it's where he's Gandalf goes. visit him. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and they thought that he was. They were kind of hoping that he would meet him on the road, but he did not. Um, but Gandalf kind of veers off and goes to find him. Right. Um, and so who knows what they talked about, you know? But. Uh, you know, it, but here again, you've got you know Gandalf is his the nature of Gandalf is is a known one. If you especially if you read more of the Legendarium, because the Valar had a subset of uh, sort of demigods called the Maiar. Is that right? uh, yes, Maiar. Yes, and um, there are several of those, but amongst those are the five wizards, mm-hmm. which are disguised as old men who are sent to Middle Earth to do battle with the uh, servants of Morgoth, who was the Valar, who is essentially the Satan character in Tolkien's myths. Yes. He's, the, he's the deity which turned to evil, and Sauron was his chief servant, who was also Maiar. So yes. they're kind of, in, in terms of their nature, they're on like equal footing. And um, so you have a character like Gandalf, who's a wizard. Wizards are not a dime a dozen in Lord of the Rings. They're very rare. Yes. We only know of three and then there's two that are mentioned, but their names are never given? Or maybe they are. I think they're given in the Cimmerillion, perhaps. Okay, there's two blue ones, mm-hmm. and they like wandered off to the east to look around and never came back. Never came back. Um, and then there's Gandalf the Grey, Saruman the White, who is in charge. He's kind of the captain of the wizards. And then there's Radagast the Brown, and they each have kind of their own special points of emphasis. So Gandalf primarily t- goes amongst the elves. Saruman primarily goes amongst human beings. Radagast primarily goes amongst animals, and so they, uh, you know, they don't interact much. They have no oversight, but their mission is basically to help undo the evils of Morgoth. Yes, which is why at the end of the story, Gandalf departs because Sauron is destroyed. Right. His purpose has been fulfilled, and right. now it's time for men to take over because, um, you know, his he's free to go, right. free, to, free to return to where he's from. So the reason why I bring that up is because Gandalf has a definitive nature, which we can understand that it is explained. It's difficult to comprehend it entirely, but we have a frame of reference for this kind of thing. Right. He's a magic person who's disguised as an old man who has some magic. The magic is not clearly defined. What what he can do is not clearly defined, but we know that he's doing a thing. He has a clear mission. He's clear. So Tom Bombadil doesn't have any of that stuff. Correct. He's something. He's some kind of magical being. We don't know what he wants. We don't know what he's doing. He doesn't seem to have any desires. Like he lives in a hut yeah. with his wife, and they just sort of get food from like growing off trees. So Eden type situation. Yeah, absolutely. They don't really seem to have to work for their food. Um, there's a reference to how Goldberry has to do her spring cleaning, and I think that that's a meant to meant to be a joke about how it's about to be rainy season. Right. And she, like there's going to be floods in the river, and so. Um, and because she's the river's daughter, right? Right. And, um, uh, but uh, yeah, interesting character, and I agree with you. I think I agree with your conclusion, which is if you can't do this exactly correctly, let's just not, um, because 
I don't know. It's just uh, it would be a shame to do it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Tom Bombadil. Um, I, I am in the camp of prelapsarian Adam, okay. right? So, um, I, I you know Tolkien despised allegory. So this is just one application. There are several yeah. that you could make, um, but I think you just get so much prelapsarian Adam. Indic- in, uh, indicators, right? So he is a gardener, right? That's yeah, Adam, yeah. prelapsarian Adam. That's his job. Um, he is uh, someone who has dominion, right? So that's uh-huh. the that's the cultural mandate the master. of the garden. Refer- when they ask him what his nature is, that's like the only response that, the, right. that he has. He, uh, he not is not very clear. It says that um, in the Council of Elrond, you mentioned this earlier, like, hey, let's just give the ring to Tom Bombadil. And what Gandalf says is, it's not. So someone claims he seems to have mastery over the ring, like he can, yeah, he can affect, wield it. The, the magic, the evil of the ring, does not affect him. And so what? Yeah. And Gandalf corrects them. He says it's not, or maybe it's Elrond, but what, either Gandalf or Elrond correct them and say it's not that he has mastery over the ring. It's that the ring doesn't have mastery over him. Yeah. And there's a difference there, and that yeah. gets to like, it's not that he would master it. It's that he would lose it. Yeah. Right. He would just. Absent-mindedly forget about to him. it because it means nothing yeah. to him. Because I think there's he even puts it on mm-hmm. and nothing happens. And nothing happens. Which normally, if you haven't seen or read, normally the bearer of the ring, when you put it on your finger, becomes invisible to the naked eye because they enter like the, uh, like a spirit realm kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, sort of like a like a place where wraiths go. And so fleshly eyes can't see. Uh, wraiths can still see you. Sauron can still see you. Um, and some other magical beings seem to have the ability to detect the ring bearer um, at different times. Bombadil but can. Bombadil, Because yeah. Frodo pops it on. Yeah. And, and he says, you know, hey, come back. Come sit down. Come yeah. sit down. Um, but but he can put it on and admire it. Yeah. And he does admire it, uh, which is another interesting caveat. Yeah. Right? Because we're kind of told that the ring is evil. Mm-hmm. But when he pops it on, he kind of looks at it admiringly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it he has no – it has no control over him. Um, which is again, uh, I I think that's another ha- like hearkening to this is a this is an Adam who doesn't fall. Yeah. This is an Adam who can admire the fruit but not eat the fruit. Yeah. Right. Um. And so, uh, there's that. Um. Of course, there's the very famous um scene, which I think this is sort of the second Adam. Right. He he pulls the hobbits out of a grave. Uh-huh, right. He yeah. he reclaims them from death. Um, but also the part that uh, some people overlook, and you, it's really easy to overlook if you're not paying attention. And by the way, let me just – this is a perfect place to interject this. Uh, a well-meaning person once told me, The Lord of the Rings is, is not so hard to read as long as you don't read – as long as you don't pay attention to the songs. Um, please – As in the songs are like drawn out and boring. The, yeah, the, 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 the songs are not important. Yeah. The songs are important. Okay, read them, enjoy them. First of all, they're beautiful, but also secondarily, they serve purposes. Tolkien doesn't just put songs in there for no reason. Yeah. They often serve as historical. Um, they often serve a historical purpose, right? They give the reader background context. But in the case of Tom Bombadil, one of the songs he sings reveals that he has the the ability to name things. He yeah. names the hobbits ponies, uh-huh. and and Tolkien. And then they come to their names exactly. Yeah. They they respond to the names that he gives them, and forevermore, those are their names, yeah. right? That if you call those names, those ponies will come. And so this is again, I think, a prelapsarian Adam. Adam's naming the animals. That's his, one of his primary uh, roles is to be a the, the namer of things because he has the authority because to he do has that. the authority yeah. to name to name the animals. And so there's just a lot of prelapsarian. Uh, we could keep going here. Um, but whether Tom Bombadil is a prelapsarian Adam 
whether he is a uh, Valar who has come to Middle Earth, which I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. Won't get into that because you need Cimmerillion uh, bona fides in order to kind of get into that conversation. Or if he is, as C.R. Wiley argues, the point, right? He is the happy ending. He mm-hmm. is, um, Tolkien is kind of hinting to us at the beginning of the story, this is where the story is going to terminate, mm-hmm. right? This, this is this is what the Golden Age looks like yeah. when, the, when the quest is completed. Um, all of the above, right? Tom sure. Bombadil is, an, is essential to, this, to the Lord of the Rings. He is not extra. Mm-hmm. He is not fat that should have been cut out. Uh, but I, again, I land in the space of, in fact, because he is so important, but also so enigmatic. Yeah, I am of the camp. I am in the camp that I'm. I'm kind of glad he's not in the films. Okay, uh, because if he were, if they were to have done him poorly, it, it, especially because it happened so early in the story. Yeah, it just could have really derailed the entire project. Yeah, um, and in a way that I think would have been unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am very sympathetic yeah. to Peter Jackson and his team, uh, more so than some Tolkien diehards. Yeah, I um, and that. and I am happy to have an entirely different podcast episode just on the nuances of Tom Bombadil. But I think for now, probably that's that's enough. Unless there's anything you want to add. No, I do think uh, one more thing before we wrap this episode up. I would like to talk about the nature of magic mm. in Tolkien's Middle Earth. Agreed. Because you have, uh, we are a people who have exposure to lots of stories that involve magic, and uh, you know we've we've got Dungeons and Dragons, we've got. You know, the Force with Star Wars, we've got... uh, Harry Potter. Yeah, there's lots of different versions of how magic can be used. And, um, you know, some people try to break it up into hard magic systems and soft magic systems, which I don't... I'm not... We won't... We'll try not to avoid that classification because I think Tolkien's magic is a little bit unique in... Even in uh, fantasy literature. So, in in The Lord of the Rings, there's magic that is... Um, it, there's very rarely magic which is able to be con- consciously just cast. No, not many people have that. Gandalf has it, but he doesn't have it all the time, um, or at least he doesn't use it all the time. Right. Uh, there is, there are magical creatures. So we have um, we have trees that are animate. We have um, we have mountains that are animate. Mm-hmm. Um, we have. Uh, uh, the Balrog. We have um, Bjorn from Bjorn, from yeah, who's a shapeshifter from the Hobbit. Um, we have, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of the magic Dragons. is is more. It's like it's subtle magic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the rings magic is corrupting, and in the this is again the contrast between the movie and the book is is the subtlety. Where in the book, the ring's magic is much more subtle. Its influence is much more subtle and slow. And in the movie, it's very drastic. It depends on the person, though. It's implied that that Frodo is resistant to the ring because he is he has no ambition. He doesn't want to rule things. He has no like goal. He just wants to go home and smoke his pipe. You right. Know? And the ring can't do anything with that to make him desire conquest, which is what the ring is for. The ring is the ring of power. And so... The magic of the ring in the movies is much more rapidly corrupting. Um, you know, it gets Baromir immediately. Uh, he's he's written as a guy who just immediately is, from the first scene that we see him in, he's kind of trying to shake off the ring's magic. Right. And, um, 
You know, there's certain characters that are less affected by it. Dwarves and elves seem a little more resistant to the magic of the ring. Men are the most susceptible to the magic of the ring. And hobbits are the least susceptible. So they pick a hobbit to deliver it because this guy's going to have to carry it a long way. Eventually, of course, it does burden him. And there is, uh, I don't remember if Frodo had any of those uh, moments, but there's a part in it where Sam takes the ring in The Return of the King. Yes. Um, after he thinks that Frodo has been killed in, in uh, a, by a giant spider. And so he takes the ring because he's like, well, i got to finish the mission, you know. And so uh, he has images flashing through his head of Sam Gamgee being a conquering warlord with an army of good men behind him, like right. conquering Mordor. And he has to kind of overcome that. And he has he has zero interest in that, you know, without the ring's influence. And so it's it's a little bit confusing in the book about what the ring is actually doing to people. But clearly what it is trying to play on is your desire for power. Right. And if you have no desire for power, you're more resistant sure. to it. Sure. So um so you have that kind of magic. You have the magic that's imbued into Anduril, right? Like Anduril is essentially just a sword most of the time. But not anybody can use it. And it's never clear what happens if somebody who's not Aragorn tries to pick it up and use it. Like what happens to it? Does right. it just is it just a regular sword? Does it burn their hands? Do they have to drop it? Um, could they not pick it up at all, like Thor's hammer? Like it would just sit there on the floor and they couldn't lift it? Like there's, it's never brought up. Um, like there's no practical outpouring of it, but it is implied like no one can use this but you. Right. To Aragorn. Um, some things are a little more mundane. Sting, for instance, is an elvish blade, and elvish blades always turn blue in the presence of goblins and orcs. So... Okay, very clear enchantment. We get that. We understand what that does. Sure. That's a useful device for, um, you know, early detection, although it is a threat indicator, so tactically it can be a liability. And on, on that, too, like, Sting is a spider killer. Yes. Right? So, yeah. like, it, it's, it was forged in a different age. It was forged by elves. But, like, yeah. we, you don't – this is – you almost kind of have to read between the lines, but, like, it was clearly forged for the purpose of killing spiders. Right, yeah. like so, the sting is an artifact which is brought by Bilbo from the Hobbit mm -hmm. into the Lord of the Rings, and it is given to Frodo as the outset of his quest because he needs a sword. Mm -hmm. um, he needs a good quality sword. Bilbo has one he's not using, and uh, to hit to go back to the Silmarillion briefly, the sword was forged by elves who were fighting. Uh, in, and at the time, they were dealing with a, uh, an area, a valley that was full of giant spiders. And so they had made some weapons for that use. Right. And Sting is ostensibly one of those. Right. Um, and so because of that, Sting assists Bilbo, right, when he's yeah. killing spiders. But then uh, Frodo and Sam, when they're in the lair of Shelob, who's like the grand poobah of spiders that's left. She's the daughter of Ungoliant, who is like the mother spider. Um and so she's kind of like the biggest spider that's left. Yeah. Um, uh, other weapons are useless. They cannot against penetrate her. the. Uh, they cannot penetrate the skin of the spider. And, and or even like her cords, right? Like yeah. Sam. Oh yeah, they can't. Cut Sam tries web, to yeah. use his sword to cut through one of her webs, and it takes like, I don't know, it's like thirty-two hacks or something. Yeah, right. His arm. One, his arm is yeah. dead, and it cuts one strand, and then Sting can just kind of cut through all of them. Yeah. Right. And so there's like clearly an enchantment of some mm -hmm. kind um, that the the sword Sting is 
specially equipped yeah. to kill spiders. But this brings us to a really interesting point about magic, and this is probably where you're going, so I, if I'm stealing your thunder, I'm sorry about that. Um, but the hobbits ask the elves when they're in Lorien are that, about cloaks, but it's, it yeah. kind of goes to sting. I was gonna, that's what I was going to bring up next. Yeah, well, well you go there. Don't, don't let me steal your thunder. Well, just, uh, just that, you know, the elves have magic, which is uh, borderline mundane. Like, right. they, almost everything they touch is magic. Um, they have their... You know, trees are magic. They, they. She gives Sam magic dirt, which he <laughs> takes back to Hobbiton to the Shire, and like regrows all the trees that Saruman cut down in like a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything about them has some sort of element of magic to it. And some of that is 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 literally mundane, where it's just like, yeah, they've been alive a thousand years. Of course, they craft the best everything, right? Because their craftsmen have perfected these arts, right? Um, which the movie does really great aesthetically because mm-hmm. they're trying to demonstrate through the elvish architecture and wardrobe, like what would it look like if you really couldn't advance any further in these arts? And um, they just did a great, they just really cool job of giving them a unique and interesting look that kind of communicated that. But one of the things that they give them, they give them several gifts and they're not all immediately apparent what their use will be. But one of the ones that is persistently used is the cloaks of Lothmorian, yes. which are kind of a grayish color, and they close at the throat with a le- like a leaf brooch. So they're depicted in the movie, and their description is really close to the books. Yes, like they, yes. they get that pretty well right. They did. And those cloaks hide them in circumstances that are extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one in the movie which is borderline silly where they slide they're at the black gate and they (laughs) slide down the hill and it looks like and the cloak he throws the cloak over him and it kind of looks like a boulder and it tricks us some some soldiers who come to investigate the noise and uh they did a thing you know they they did a movie thing with it to make the the cape look like a boulder so it was kind of stiff and stuff but uh it's more subtle in the book where it's just like you know prying eyes can't notice them as well and the cloaks are extremely resistant to damage because they carry them through all kinds of conflict and sure. and they get you know, uh, but they're also just like cloaks, you know, like it's right. just a cloak. You just put it on, or it's cold, you know? right? Um, and so, uh, and that's just the magic of the elves in action. Yes, um, the vial of Galadriel is an art, is a magical artifact, which she says it's light from one of our favorite stars. Mm-hmm. Galadriel's character is compared to the Morning Star. To be juxtaposed with Arwen, who's the evening star. Right. Um, and uh, light and just the effect that Galadriel has on them, um, it's it's never clearly defined. Like yes. There's no, there's no point at which Gandalf or uh, Tolkien goes into explanations about what she can do, what she's capable of doing. Um, she just is an enchanting person. And you get that through his writing. But he doesn't... He doesn't harshly and clearly define the magic of a lot of these things. Yeah. I mean, there's one part where it talks about how um, – I wish I could remember. The line stuck with me because he's talking about something. It's, it's after the, this is after the return of the king, after the coronation. After they're doing restoration. It may be when the dwarves come to help them rebuild the walls. There's okay. a reference made to where he has dwarves come to help them. And it talks about how they have restored the gates. And I think it says they covered the gates with runes of great virtue. Yes. And um, and that is that is magical language. Right? right. Like, otherwise it would just be, you know, carve some cool words on the, the wall. But um, they do that, and, I, and I, you know, it's some kind of protective spell. And it's a dwarvish magic. So they use runes for their magic. 
Um, but it's never clearly defined what that is. You yeah. Know, will it take a couple of extra shots with a battering ram next time, or is it now impenetrable to enemies? Sure. Um, you have the the door of Moria, which is um, moon. The moon. Uh, what is the name of that stuff? The, uh, uh, it's Mithril, but they have it's, right. It's, it's enchanted moon in runes. such a way so that you can see it in moonlight. Right. And. Um, and the the dwarves may they can make doors completely invisible when they're not open, and that kind of stuff. Um, and it's just the the world seems like magic is all around you, but it's always just out of your reach. Yeah, like you that's You can never good. just take hold of it. Um, but it's it's everywhere in the world that they that they occupy, and I just love that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the conversation that the hobbits have with the elves, they ask the elves about the cloaks because the elves say, "This never before have we clothed an outsider yeah. in our garb, but these cloaks will help shield you from unfriendly eyes. They're made with the magic of Lorien, although they don't say magic. They just it's made made with the skill of the yeah, elves. Yeah, made by I the skill of the elves the term, is, yeah. is the term. And the hobbits ask them, "Are they magic?" And the elves are confused by the question. Yeah, because what they say is, "We use the word magic." To denote the machinations of the enemy, right? Yep. So Sauron, uh, and by extension Saruman, use magic to dominate. Yeah. The elves use magic to cultivate. They use magic to inappropriately manipulate their world. Right. Yeah. And so that that to me is the that's the closest you ever get to yeah. like definitions, mm-hmm. right? And they're <laughs> sometimes infuriating. I love when I teach this to my students. I ask them. It's a it's a test question for them, uh, right? Are the elven cloaks magic, uh, right? And they have to wrestle, and I just constantly come back to it. Are they magic? Are they magic? The elven rope, right? Yeah, that Sam yeah. uses, un- yes. sort of seemingly unknots itself. Never clearly explained. You never get an answer. Yeah. You know, Frodo's Frodo's sort of, you know, placate Sam. It's kind of a, a, yeah. a shoulder, you know, or a, an elbow jab and a wink, right? Like, sure, Sam, it's magic. But Sam is convinced, like, my knots never come untied. Yeah, I did not I, I, that up. Yeah. I don't do a whole lot. I'm a gardener, but, like, I can tie a good well, knot. Well, he said he talks about how he has a, he has kind of a layman's interest in rope making. Right. Right, he had done that some. And so he was like, oh, man, I would have, I wish I could have, you know, been like seen these ropes before now i would have asked him about it and they were like oh you should have said something we would have helped you we would have taught you how to do our sure. ropes um but that's uh, right yeah that's right back um, in lauren he says that um but he's he's convinced that the that the elven rope has sort of unknotted itself in their in their time of need yeah. and so for him it's magic um, but Sam also is kind of an interesting character because he's got like a childlike naivete about the world, yeah. And specifically the elves, like he's just yeah, he's moonstruck. By yeah, them, he's yeah. he's definitely. And so you're from from our point of view, you're just kind of like, okay, is this Sam being childlike? You're too quick to believe the elves right. are magic, yeah. or did the rope really unknot itself, yeah. right? And you you you're just not given a clear answer, yeah. And so uh, it is like you said, it is intentionally, and I think masterfully and beautifully vague yeah the 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 way that magic works although it's clearly a magical world yeah um and so uh for those of you who are you know into like a D system or you really like harry potter um or really just like any modern fantasy genre where those things are clearly defined um you're gonna be frustrated right <laughs> you're gonna be yeah. frustrated by the lack of definition but you can kind of learn to let go of that um and just so so let me ask you this since we're on the subject here and i know we're trying to wrap up but why why is tolkien so infuriatingly ambiguous about magic in his legendary 
Oh, I'm trying to think of what. I'm trying to think of what like. Uh, You know his source. His sources are different because a lot of people look back to Lord of the Rings as a source, and um, you know you think of Arthurian lore, you think of things like Beowulf, uh, and that kind of that's the norm yeah. in those. Well, think yep. about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, sure, like which Tolkien translated. There is magic in that. How was it that the Green Knight was able to turn himself into a giant Green Knight and survive decapitation? Right. How was it that, I mean, like, that is never explained. Yeah. The best the best explanation we get is that uh, Gawain gets a sash that is some kind of enchantment to protect him. Yeah. Um, and so the the knight must have had something similar. Um, but, like, what was it? Where did it come from? Who yeah. made it? What is the nature of this guy? Uh, you know, like when he gets to Bertilak's castle, it's like out in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, I didn't know about this guy's place. It's in... He's, you know, this is Gawain. Where like he's at the court of the king. He should know all the nobles. Sure. And this is almost like a, it's almost like a haunted house setting. Yeah. Right? Like where it's just spontaneously come up, and uh, you know that's that's an example I would give. Beowulf, right? Like Grendel is magic. Clearly, Grendel's mother is. Their origins are not really clearly like they they're descendants of Cain, but that's all we know. That's all we get. For some reason, Beowulf's sword is not sufficient to kill. Grendel's mother, but there is a sword that's in the horde down there that is. Yeah. What's different about it? It's never clearly explained. Right. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the old stories. And I guess that I, I think, I guess if I'm trying to, to answer the question for both Tolkien and for the old stories, is that there was an acceptance by people further back in history that wonder and that unknown and that mystery is a is a is a not something to be done away with Mm. like let it be a mystery let it be like it may not be for people to know why you know tolkien's famous for the, the lord of the rings but he had a lot to say on on fairy stories absolutely great essay on fairy stories and about um, how fairy stories take place in dangerous realms perilous realms perilous realms and um how any good fairy story always has an element of uh danger threat like a like a there's a there's an element to it where it makes you shudder just a little bit sure so an example i would give of this would be the movie jumanji the original jumanji right it's kind of a kid's movie but there's there's a couple of parts of Jumanji that are scary. Oh yeah, um, they're not horrifying. Like it's not like a horror story, but like the hunter, the giant spiders. You know, it starts out kind of comedic. Like there's monkeys that are on the loose, and oh no, the monkeys, and then oh oh the mosquitoes. So those that could actually be a serious problem. Oh no, like it's getting worse. There's a stampede going through the house. Oh no, there's a you know like it, every it's an upgrade every time. Right and um. It gets to where, like, life and limb is really jeopardized. Sure. Um, and so the game, the Jumanji game itself, is a is like a fairyland. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you can open this, and you're going to have a really amazing adventure. But, like, you better come correct, because sure. you're going to have to deal with danger. 
Yeah. And um, I kind of thought it would be funny if somebody ever made a sequel where like people just like armed up and like went out to like a field far from civilization and just like intentionally played a game of Jumanji to, <laughs> just to see who would win. Um, probably wouldn't be a very interesting movie, but um, but that's kind of what it makes me think of where there it's a, it, in the old days. I think people recognized that there were things in the world that were not explainable necessarily yeah. as shakespeare would say not everything in heaven and earth is in your philosophy has been dreamt of in your philosophy yeah um and uh you know and in that scene he's defending the presence of a ghost which one of his friends is saying now there's no you know there's no ghosts sure he's like well you don't know everything right you know you might think you do and i think that that's correct like i'm not i don't necessarily believe in ghosts but I think dragons once wandered the earth. Sure. You know, I sure. think that there were giants. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm prepared to accept that there are certain interest fantasy creatures, quote unquote, that have existed in some form or other. And so, um, how do you deal with that? How do our ancestors deal with that? You know, did the Lord bless individuals to do battle with these people in ways that was not explainable? You know, Ten men went up against a certain monster to fight it and lost because their sword couldn't cut through its skin. And then the eleventh man went to the, went to pray in the chapel first, and then went out and fought it and won. Right. Oh, well, he has a blessed sword, or something. You know, whatever. You know, they might come up with some explanation for that, or they might just say like magic, whatever. I don't know exactly what happened, but somehow it was magic. I think it was Tolkien who used to talk about how. Um, he, he was complaining about how we get all of our food like brought in from elsewhere, and um, like you get your bread from, yeah, you know, imported from other countries or from across the country or something like that. And he would he talked about how people used to drink the water and eat the food that was grown in the dirt that their ancestors lived on, and that because of that, he thinks, and I don't know how serious he was, but I I, I suspect he might have been that people used to see nymphs in the water and dryads in the woods because they had a connection to the earth in that area and the magic that that was there was a part of their blood yeah like it was in them from eating and drinking and living multiple generations in the same place and he kind of was decrying the loss of that and uh i just think that that's how he viewed magic as like the bad the world is a magical place it's not exactly the kind of thing that you can just reach out and touch yeah like people who are into like witchcraft and wicca are just deluded like that's not how magic works but um it's out there um and of course it's exaggerated in his story but uh i don't know that's it that, that would be my hypothesis yeah I was, just, I was just thinking out loud just now so yeah i mean i i, I think i'm in a total agreement, right a, a re-enchantment of the of the world right like tolkien's writing a myth and his intention was to create a, a myth for England, right? That this is England's myth. Um, and so I, I think intentionally he's ambiguous because what I think one of the things he's driving at is that the, the world is a magical place. And we've lost, we've lost an appreciation for the enchantment of the mundane. And that's you, – you kind of talked about the elf magic being – um, it's it's art, right? It's a yeah. mund- it's it's artistry, it's craftsmanship, mm-hmm. um, but it is mundane to them because it is a it's every day. It is every day, yeah. but it doesn't make it less magical to the hobbits, yeah, right. And I think that that's maybe what he's kind of driving at is that the modern man, um, because Tolkien is a modern writer, 
right? The modern man has lost in his Hellenistic drive to to um, dissect uh-huh. the world around him to understand its inner workings. Yeah. Um, has lost an appreciation for um, the magic that surrounds us, and so and to kind of set us anything that we cannot empirically explain or measure must be set aside as untruth, right? Or you know some sort of pseudoscience, right? And there is lots of pseudoscience, but um, that's that's where discernment has to come in. Where it's sure, like, yeah, there's such things as charlatans and liars and snake oil salesmen and chiropractors and all kinds of other frauds. But um, there's also that, like, there's also magic. Yeah, you know, yeah, one hundred percent. And uh, you know, there, there's going to be you may encounter things that you can't explain. Sure. Um, I- what so. do you, and what do you do there? Yeah. Well, listen. I think that's a this is a great place to end. Let me let me just drop a teaser for part two. Okay. So things still to be discussed: Faramir mm. uh, and the uh, difficulties therein. Eowyn. Yep. Uh, and I will get on my high horse there for for a little while. Uh, we need to talk about the scouring of the Shire. Yep. Uh, in greater detail, you've alluded to it. You've sort of mentioned it, but we need to talk about that in detail. Any anything else we can throw out there as a my, teaser? My biggest beef with the film trilogy generally is the um, the relationship between Sam Frodo oh, and Gollum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good uh, with the movies. Oh gosh, there's a big deviation between. So the, the way <laughs> I they... feel like this one was like really positive, and yeah. like next the next episode is going to be like, you okay, suck. here are all our here are all our issues. Yeah. Here, here's yeah. all the places you suck. So well, I think we're going to see. I mean, there's going to be a few things that I, I, like Aowen. I think is kind of inexcusable. Yeah, but um, uh, and probably Faramir as well. Like I don't think they needed to do him the way they did, but I understand why they did what they did with uh, the Hobbits and Gollum. Um, I still think it was a detraction. Yeah, but they needed, they wanted there to be tension. Yeah. So well, well, anyway, we'll get into all of it. Um, So Lord of the Rings Part Two coming your way. Part Two of question mark. (laughs) Um, We're not sure if it's going to be a Part Three or not, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, You want to close us out here with some some farewells? Yeah. What am I supposed to say again? I've forgotten. Uh, okay. So we, let's see. Well, if you're if you're in the Cookville area, Cookville, Tennessee area, you can come by uh, the table, hang out, and play some board games. We can you can come play some Cthulhu board games. Lord of the um, Rings. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Uh, a number of a number of uh, excellent games available for uh, uh, anybody who has any interest in any kind of game. They've kind of got they've got, they're going to have something for you. All ages. Um, if you need to pick up a copy of Lord of the Rings, find your nearest local bookstore. And if it's uh, Walls of Books, then uh, hit that up for sure. Um, if they don't have it, they can order it. And they often will have some Lord of the Rings stuff used. So it's a good place to go check things out. Um, check out our sister podcast, Pop Culture Quorum Deo, uh, which discusses pretty much just movies. Although occasionally they accidentally talk about a book that's related <laughs> to it. That's where this podcast originated, actually, because I was a guest on there one time, and we talked about a, mo- a book and a movie, and I was like, I want to do this on my own. Um, so we, that's where that's where we came from. What else? Am I, what am I missing? Uh, Servants and Heralds. Oh, yeah. Check out the Servants and Get Heralds stuff. website, which is servantsandheralds.com. Um, and if you need to get in touch with us, if you want to uh, complain about it, anything, we have an email <laughs> account that we check like once a month. So um, you can you can get with that. It's uh, scriptvmanuscript at gmail.com. Um, and you can hit up our Facebook page as well, which we also occasionally check. 
So feel free to leave comments there for us to not read. And, um, <laughs> and if you're if you're writing to complain about the podcast length, we're just gonna file it. Yeah, yeah, that's we don't care. Um, just pause it and come back later. That's easy to do. Uh, I guess that's all for now. Um, we'll be signing off. So this has been Script v Manuscript, the podcast where we drone endlessly on about movies and books that we care about, whether you care about them or not. I am uh, one of your hosts, Terry, here with... I'm Joe. And we'll be signing off. <laughs>